0: Hello, welcome to We Don't Talk About the Weather. Political discussion from the outside may look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam and this is Hugh. Hello. And we're here to talk news and politics.
1: We are. And my mic is too far away.
0: There we go. Good start.
1: That's better. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, So, how are you doing?
1: Right. Two weeks with the kid gone, not enjoying it. It's kind of nice. um, But also, miss her. Don't like. Glad that she isn't being treated like some of the other students. Like You
0: mean hemmed in.
1: Yeah, like like I said it I think I said it last week, like if like first year students, fuck me. Just uh Sitting in a
0: landlord's prison.
1: Yeah. Um <laughs> like but can you imagine there must there's been court cases between former students and universities, haven't there? Like about stuff like I got I didn't get the grade I feel like I should have got and stuff like that. And say mm-hmm. you're in your third year now and you lost about a third of your second year, and your whole final year is going to be very not normal. Very restricted. In no way could they say, oh yeah, you definitely wouldn't have got a better grade than that.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Basically, I think they
1: should sue the fuck out of every university. (laughs) Fuck them.
0: It's a it's a really fucking odd one. It's like who could have guessed that running uh, universities on a shoestring, but then giving them massive capital budgets to build these huge buildings, and investing so much and so much like resource into the like accommodation sector, yeah, such that if there's even one little thing goes wrong, mm-hmm. it all comes crashing down. Who could have guessed that was you know <laughs> that was what was going to happen when you started marketizing universities?
1: Yeah, um, she already knows a couple of kids have gone home. Really? Um, Yeah, there's... there was. Oh, God. Like, LBC is the worst, but there's been quite a few very angry parents of students voting up. And I think the worst one that I've heard so far, there was, like, one who uh, science student who um, will get one lab session a term? Um, That doesn't sound like enough. Nope, but the best one... I'm not an expert. (laughs) The best one is Japanese student, their final year, they're supposed to be in Japan... They were told they can't defer. So they don't get to go to Japan. They get to stay at home and do online lessons on Japanese university time. <laughs> Great. So just imagine it, that.
0: <laughs> it sounds like a it's a kind of debtor prison, except it's kind of like a like a social debt yeah. to landlords and to universities for them to continue existing.
1: Yeah. And then you have all these, you people, know,
0: yeah. And then you have all these people. The, new, so, like, the um, new social contract is you have to pay money into the renting sector. <laughs> you have to do it. Yep. It's your duty as a city. It is every citizen's final duty <laughs> to pay into the rental market. Yep.
1: Um, that's kind of what they've done with, um, with care homes. Like, even if you've yeah. got a house, you will be dragged out of your house and go into this expensive rental accommodation.
0: It's the only thing left that's absolutely functioning. Yeah, it's 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 the thing. It's the vital thing. It's the vital thing at the heart of everything. And of course, it's not vital. It's actually incredibly economically stupid. But like, it's the you can see where everyone's priorities are now mm-hmm. as this drags on and on. You can see, and I, I, like, I don't think, I don't think they're going to do another major lockdown. I might be wrong, but I don't think they're going to do another major lockdown. Mainly because the commercial renting sector literally can't handle it.
1: Yeah, well, I think they're going to do. Um they're going to do what they're doing now which is if your business fails it's not explicitly because of something boris johnson said so you can't blame him and you can't (laughs) ask the government for money
0: unless you have a very powerful lobbying body that happens to include a lot of prominent politicians yeah
1: exactly oh it's fucking gross (laughs) but yeah so that's
0: did you see the um report about people not being able to get personalized tests um all the Not being able to get tests posted home unless they're on the electoral roll. Yeah,
1: so that's a that's a good one. That's that's like that's just top tier
0: bureaucracy. I love it. It does feel like bureaucracy, but it also feels like there's a certain kind of um, systemic logic to what they're doing, as in their system, not ours. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, millions of people face being barred from receiving COVID-19 tests in England because their identity cannot be verified by a credit checking company contracted by the government to prevent the abuse of the public testing system transunion a credit checking company is used by the department of health to verify the names and addresses of people who request home coronavirus tests the company said it does not run a credit check but verifies people's identities using various sources of information including the electoral register up to 5.8 million people with poor credit histories in the uk could struggle to order the home kits
1: just fantastic which
0: is just absolutely of course because it makes absolutely perfect sense to that system if you're a system of like landlords and credit checks that everything should be run through that Hmm. and how like if you were of a conspiratorial mindset not that i would ever dream of being like that but if you're of a conspiratorial mindset i mean that is that is like identity checks that is kind of checking whether you've got enough money to Receive healthcare. Yeah. That is that. Yeah. It's,
1: it, yeah. It's, um, also it does this, it does a nice thing of helping fudge the numbers because the people who are, it's already been, they've already talked about it a lot that the people who are getting it disproportionately are the poorest and they're the people who aren't going to be
0: on the electoral register. It's just, it's, it's absolutely kind of perfect. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. OK, this week, uh, we've been wanting to do this for a little while, um, but we're going to talk about the worst of new Labour.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, to hear some people over the past five years, you would think that new Labour was this like heyday of liberal progressive governance.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but it's kind of been 10 years since anyone has actually been under a, a new, anything close to a new Labour government. And it yeah. remains for, for some people the only prism through which they see politics. Um, You know, like for most people during whenever Corbyn tried to kind of say something that was in conflict with the new Labour brand or new Labour core values or whatever, that mere act of distancing quite a lot of the time became seen not just as like some kind of betrayal, but it was like objectively erroneous. Yeah. You know, you'd get all these people sitting on the sidelines going, oh, he he can't do that. That's that's terrible. That's you know going to lead to defeat, and I mean you know it did, but not for that reason, I mm-hmm. would guess. Um, and it seems like what New Labour actually did has been kind of memory hold into this display of righteousness, and everything about New Labour was good treats to the good boys. Um, you know that that was the the days when we were young, wise, and beneficent. Um, and this shouldn't stand. This no. cannot stand. Well, so we will mu- not allow it.
1: So much of it seems to be based entirely on the fact that matt ford enjoyed being in his like 20s and
0: 30s (laughs) i mean there's well the thing is there's the people like matt ford who are obviously deranged like that's um they are off this planet with how much they talk about actively loving tony blair but there's still that kind of subtext that basically blairism was the right way of doing politics Mm -hmm. that it was the only it was the only spectrum you should be allowed allowed to be on politically yeah you know and like blairism and new labor different terms roughly the same kind of thing because i think like new labor actually had quite a lot of different strains in it Mm -hmm. one of them was blairite there was probably a brownite one in there there was social democracy christian democracy neoliberalism there were all these different kinds of approaches so you know we're probably going to end up using blairite and new labor um labor right interchangeably yeah um but seeing as uh, on this show, we're all about personalities, not policies, um, <laughs> we're going to do this like a little end of year awards category.
2: Mm.
0: Um, so we're going to look at the, some prominent figures from New Labour, and we're going to decide which one's the worst.
2: Yeah, um, um, we,
0: we struck off Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. They're not, yes.
1: not fair. Tony Blair can't it, it, compete yeah. with this. Well,
0: also, like, they even changed the nature of being a prime minister so that Tony Blair was kind of involved in everything. Like, if you're talking about foreign policy, like, who made foreign policy? Was it a foreign secretary or was it the prime minister? Yeah. You know, at at that point, you're kind of dipping into a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we've we've disbarred uh, uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. It's going to be mostly cabinet ministers, but we have included a few kind of outliers who we think are kind of the worst
1: yeah yeah definitely
0: start one of the first names that come up whenever i'm thinking of the absolute worst of new labor mm-hmm. david
2: blunkett
0: mm-hmm. all right i'll start off strong very very strong I, I don't know if anyone's going to beat it. maybe as we go through this maybe it, we, it kind of opens up but yeah. so um uh, david blunkett was probably the most high profile new labor appointment to come from local government yeah um he Which, was elected you know, to like the Sheffield. government yeah, uh, he, well, he was elected to Sheffield Council at 22, and he was a Sheffield councillor for 18 years oh before God. he became a cabinet minister. Um, Can you imagine what that
1: does to often... a man's brain? Like any person's
0: well, brain, if they're in, if they're part of a Labour council for that long. Well, the interesting thing is. That, of course, he was a councillor through the 80s, which was the era of, you know, like the loony left yep. to take the, the reactionary parlance of it. He he was uh, part of the, he was the head of the People's Republic of South Yorkshire, mm-hmm. as it became colloquially known as, which was considered one of the most left-wing councils in the UK.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, while he was considered a Benite on economic issues, he was not exactly a libertarian (laughs) when it came to social issues Um, from his time in council. uh, He said, was quoted in an interview. I am not prejudiced against gays and lesbians, but there is no point trying to delude myself that I feel anything but revulsion at the idea of touching another male. (laughs) Perhaps the daftest of all, are those politicians or pressure group activists who irritate the bulk of the population beyond measure by suggesting or inferring that instead of reflecting the variety of lifestyles, cultures, and interests in our community, we should go so far as to repress the norm in order to avoid the promotion of one lifestyle over another. Wow, he sounds like a like a current <clears throat> Polish education minister. <laughs> I expect, continuing the quote, I expect the bulk of our entertainment and cultural expression to reflect the fact that the majority of the population is heterosexual. Oh. That's a YouTube comment. That's, <laughs> that, is, that is.
1: That's That's um, an angry man phoning up at about like half 11 LBT.
0: Oh, um Yeah. So, I mean, he moved from local government into um, into the cabinet as education and employment secretary in 1997. Uh, And he immediately started signaling where his political loyalties lay. Uh, He pioneered citizenship lessons and he was the one who started to implement uh, city academies, which was the program that then turned into the academies that we know and love today, yep. um, which was him triangulating the desire to honor New Labour's original promises, which they were really, really big on doing away with selection. Yeah, um, But at the same time, kind of keeping it with the Blairite goal of not punishing the upwardly mobile. Yeah, You know, this was the, the his way of, of, of doing that. Um, he was promoted to Home Secretary in 2001. Two quotes from when he was appointed saying, I will make Jack Straw look like a liberal, and we could live in a world which is airy-fairy, libertarian where everybody does precisely what they like and we believe the best of everybody and then they destroy us they? they where everybody does, it's interesting like everybody does precisely what they like and then they destroy us how does he get
1: destroyed? Does he think that there's going to be like 1970s bawdy sex comedy where there's going to be like Um, same-sex couple going to town and one of their buttocks
0: will come out and like bump him and he'll fall off like a building? I mean, the context for this is this was a quote from November 2001. Oh. So that's where he's going with that. Um, Yeah. He had a a real thing about security. Uh, Mm -hmm. He had a real thing, especially a thing, uh, a special hatred of judges and lawyers. Hang on,
1: are you telling me that there was a british home secretary with an obsession with security
0: i don't know how to, <laughs> to <laughs> um on that security and freedom thing um yeah he definitely fell down the uh, he definitely fell on the security side let's say yeah um security that like security in quote marks yeah um he really really hated uh judges and lawyers um okay. A lot of people attributed this to something that happened in his early life. Mm-hmm. So, his father died in a really horrendous industrial accident. Okay. Uh, when he was 12,
2: yeah.
0: uh, his father had met a dreadful, agonizing end after falling into a, a giant vat of boiling water. Oh my oh God. Uh, he'd stayed working for the gas board after retirement age at their invitation. And after he died, they then used his age to try and avoid paying compensation. Whoa. Uh, I think him and his mum actually had to really fight in order to get uh, benefits paid to them yeah. after he had died. Wow. Um, so he was definitely he definitely picked a lot of fights with, you know, liberal activist judges and everything. Yeah. Um, so just a quick list of things he did as Home Secretary. Uh, he abolished the double jeopardy laws. which means you can't be tried for the same crime twice. Introduced ASBOs. Remember those? Yeah. Um, He told told British Asians they should speak English in their own homes. Mm
2: -hmm. Said that
0: British Asians should combine arranged marriages to partners already living here rather than flying in spouses from the Indian subcontinent. (laughs) The Indian subcontinent. (laughs) Yeah. He tried to make the head of the Commission on Racial Equality take a loyalty pledge to him (laughs) personally. Bow down to my dog. (laughs) Um, He wanted citizenship ceremonies for new migrants with, again, loyalty pledges to Britain this time, not to him personally. (laughs) Uh, He posted in 2006 that he advocated deliberately bombing the offices of Al Jazeera in 2003 to stop their negative coverage of the Iraq war. Mm hmm. He allowed judges to inform juries of defendants' previous convictions in certain types of cases. Uh, He introduced a bill to ban asylum seekers' children from attending state schools. He also introduced a bill that meant that the children of asylum seekers were taken into care when parents had exhausted all their uh, asylum appeals. What, just take them? Uh, Take them, yes. So,
1: like, the kid would be sent off to... Like, you know, it's come up in the news again recently. Pretty Patel wants to, you know, ship people to an island, um, mm-hmm. which was a thing that Blunkett also advocated for. It was very much so. So, yeah, like we'll steal the kid and then send the adult to the island.
0: Yeah. I mean, that uh, that plan, that offshore plan, yeah. uh, 100% comes from Blunkett's time. Yeah. Um, he proposed this plan where they would send all asylum seekers to processing centers outside of Europe's borders specifically. <laughs> and you don't want those
1: pesky Europeans getting involved.
0: What's more, yeah. he proposed that people would have to pay, possibly through loans or payment in kind, for the support they were given in those offshore centres. And he described this as sending a powerful message about the level of welfare support they could expect if they left their home countries.
1: So they'd have to pay for, say, the food that they were being fed yes. in an offshore prison. How would they earn the money to pay for this? Would
0: they be working in salt mines, for example? (laughs) Or, you know, certain... There's a lot of different things they could be doing.
1: Uh... (laughs) In Kaiji, when your debts to the Yakuza reach a certain level, they kidnap you and make you work in an underground mine and pay you only in Yakuza money. (laughs) This sounds like that.
0: Um, he restricted demonstrations outside Parliament, obviously as Home Secretary in the Iraq mm-hmm. War. Do you remember they they started doing that? Oh, I remember um, that. I remember they got, really with,
1: yeah, they got really annoyed with the people who were outside, outside their offices telling them off. <laughs>
0: um, he introduced new police powers to stop and search people without suspicion. Um, good good. Unsurprisingly, these were used on a vast scale against uh, innocent Muslims and were later declared unlawful by the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, He proposed asylum seekers would be put to compulsorily unpaid labor in return for benefits. So yeah, sort of minds again. Um, He, in 2001, uh, after the September 11th attacks, declared a state of emergency in order to evade human rights laws. meaning that any foreign national suspected of links with terrorism could be detained or otherwise opt not to be deported. So because they had signed up with a big fanfare to the European Convention on Human Rights, Mm -hmm. um, they could not just deport uh, foreign nationals willy-nilly. In order to get around this, he literally declared a state of emergency. The state of emergency was only lifted in April 2005. For four years, this country was literally in a state of emergency and... I don't know if I ever noticed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not that I would, um, you know, uh, those laws were not meant to be targeted at people like me.
1: No, they weren't.
0: Um, there was actually a, a group of Muslims detained in Belmarsh, um, under these provisions and they challenged them. Um, when they challenged them in, in the courts, Blunkett prevented the names or the nature of the evidence against them from being published. So again, you wouldn't oh. know what was going on. Yeah. Um, so he started uh, after this. He really seemed to go after the judiciary. Um, he picked a fight with them over imposing sentences, trying to win back some of the privileges that Home Secretaries in the past had about <laughs> um, keeping on life sentences yeah. and proposing like limits to how long you could hold someone.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, he said in 2003 he was fed up with having to deal with a situation where Parliament debates issues and judges, and then over and judges then overturn them.
2: Oh, it's so everybody.
0: Annoying. Do You remember when, you know, the traitors thing, that traitors headline came out and they put the names of the high court judges up there. Yeah. And everyone was like, oh, no, this is this is terrible. This is awful how much they're going after these judges. This is Mm -hmm. unprecedented. Like that rhetoric of liberal activist judges came very, very strongly from New Labour when the legal establishment essentially wouldn't allow them to do what they wanted Mm -hmm. or what it wanted to appease the sun. Um he also tried to suggest um, that prosecutors should be allowed to comment in court uh, based on what sentence should be passed. Hmm. Why would you, why would you do that? What, what, how does that make the court run any more smoothly? Yeah. Really? Realistically? Yeah. If a prosecutor can come up and said, Oh, I think this should be 20 years and it's meant to be a recommendation. Like I don't understand that kind of recommendation anyway, but genuinely do not understand Like what that's meant to do. That's not even harsh. That's just crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, So after politics, after he stood down um, from the cabinet, uh, a month before the BNP's local election victories in Burnley, he accused the children of asylum seekers of swamping British schools. He explained his comments in 2011 as his concern from 2001 onwards was to ensure that we didn't allow the progress of the far right, because of course we wouldn't <laughs> want the far right in power in Britain, would you? No. What, look, what would they do if they had that kind of power? <laughs> <sighs> the um, send migrants to,
1: they'd
0: send migrants to violence. There's one anecdote I wanted to read out from his memoirs, mm-hmm. um, that really indicate... Uh, by the way, uh, Bloomsbury Publishers play, paid a £400,000 advance for his memoirs, and it nice. sold 769 copies. <laughs> nice! 769! Um, yep. Very That's... nice. Oh. Uh, so, from his memoirs, um, Blunkett tells the story that during uh, a prison riot in Lincoln, that he had to instruct Martin Neri, who was the um, head of prisons, Um head of the probation service, I think, Um, he had to instruct Martin Neri to stop dithering and, if necessary, call in the army to retake the prison. He was worried that the rioting might spread throughout the prison system and that, quote, we were within a whisker of having on our hands a total and utter catastrophe. Martin Neri, when he uh, was asked about this kind of little anecdote, Mm -hmm. had a different account. Um, He said that, He directed me without delay to order staff back into the prison. I told him that we did not at that time have enough uh, staff in the prison to contemplate such a move, but that many more staff were on their way from other prisons. I insisted, however, that I was determined to take the prison back as quickly as possible. I could not and would not risk staff or prisoners' lives in attempting to do so. He, blanket shrieked at me that he didn't care about lives and told me to call in the army and machine gun the prisoners he then ordered me to take back the prison back immediately i refused and one of the prisoner governor's who overheard the exchanges remarked incredulously did he really say that he didn't care about lives so let me stress david blunkett was too right wing for prison (laughs) guards (laughs) um yeah i mean to to he obviously had other issues. He, I think he resigned. Wasn't it because he was trying to get his nanny a, a passport. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, during his breakup with his wife, uh, publicly that precipitated this resignation, um, David Blunkett is reported to have warned her. The law is on my side. I know because I made the law. (laughs) You'd be surprised at how many rewrites he
1: did, which always find in favor of one David Blunkett.
0: (laughs) I mean, you know, the old thing about like Labour politicians being converted to the view of the state when they're in government, that Mm -hmm. they can be as oppositional as they want outside of government. But Once they're in, Mm -hmm. they they see things from the prism of the British state. Yeah. Blunkett is an absolutely almost too perfect. Like he goes way too he goes way beyond the purview of like the the kind of British state. He genuinely, genuinely acted like the only thing standing between the British public and the uh, utter destruction was him. You know, yeah, and a lot of his kind of justification for that was him calling back to his working class upbringing or the working class he had known in his youth, yeah, who were you know patriotic, law abiding people who needed protection. Um, and he was the one who was going to you know cut through the nonsense and really get to grips with things. This, that weird kind of, yeah almost sadistic side that some, like, left-wingers, particularly, like, trade unions and things like that, can get mm. sometimes. Mm. And, of course, all these patriotic, law-abiding people who needed protection, there weren't any actual people. There weren't any actual people, but they were selected figments from from his uh, imaginations, this, like, weird kind of... Weird kind of hatred for actual justice, but it yeah. was based on, on toughness, you know? Yeah. Um, obviously, since he's kind of now mostly active in he pops up in the mail and the telegraph and the sun pretty regularly railing against teaching unions the Mm -hmm. bbc black lives matter protesters the left the left being whatever the tabloids happen to have in their crosshairs at any particular time Mm -hmm. he is just a fully paid up authoritarian who will trade on his labor grandee status for the rest of his miserable fucking life just don't don't ever pretend that this kind of brutality only came from the Tories, because he mm. was—he has n- no place within yeah. like anything even remotely stinking of pro- pro- like pro- proper liberalism, yeah, and like proper like leftism that's actually concerned well, with emancipation. Well, you that's
1: know? the thing with um, the Labour Party that was um, and will be again. Um, yeah. They. They want to be the Liberal Party, but nothing,
0: they're so not. People think they're the Liberal Party because we don't have a Liberal Party. The yeah. Lib Dems don't count. They're, they are not a. They are also not a Liberal Party mm. because they are. I mean, they occupy a certain certain social strata that would usually be occupied by a Liberal Party, but they're not big enough. Like the Labour Party is the Liberal Party of the UK. They occupy that 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 kind of strata, and it's. Yeah, I fucking hate. Like, David Blunkett is the worst person. He's almost beyond <laughs> hatred. He is an absolutely. He's excrement of a person. <laughs> like, a vicious bastard. I just. Yeah. Not a fan. Check it out.
2: Check us out. Come on. Come on. Come on.
1: Okay, on to the next one. Another one who all of their high achievements were in the Office of Home Secretary. Um, Jackie Smith. Now, Jackie Smith was one of the Blair's babes, you know, the all-women shortlist that got in in 97. Yeah, yeah. She sort of... like So she's coming in, like a lot of the other... Ones who are on this list, they're like the real monsters, are like labour lifers. They've
0: come up. They've come up through a combination of unions, communist parties, mm-hmm. councils, and other things, yeah. and they've always been that. Yeah,
1: yeah. So um, so she does a a bunch of things um for like the first couple of years that she's in parliament. Um, around two thousand six, she becomes the chief whip. Um, which you know. Chief Whip for the Labour Party in two thousand six. That's a lot of shouting. That's a lot. That's of... a
0: that that that's a lot of. Um, you even say the word inquiry to me.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she was regarded as um, a loyal Blairite. Um, apparently, she was quite mm. good at um, making peace between the warring Blair and Brown factions. Which, with everything people know about what mm. that was like, of like two groups of equally obnoxious people screaming at each other and threatening to kill each other. It was a very. It
0: it was a very odd thing because it was the closest thing you got to a in those days to a proper ideological contest. People went in. I mean, it was mainly about personalities, but Mm. like now you don't properly get that kind of coverage of actual like like intellectual properties to any of these politicians. You know. Yeah. So.
1: Um, it's in 2008 that she became... Um, oh, no, two, um, middle of 2007, she became um, Home Secretary. Yep. Um, January 2008, she announced that um, she wanted new powers for the police, including mm-hmm. uh, um, including the proposal to permit law enforcement services to hold terror suspects or those linked with terrorism for up to 42 days without charge. Ah, uh, that was um, a very big deal, yeah. In the same month, she said she wouldn't feel safe on the streets of London at night. <laughs> which you know
0: was she the one it might have been harriet harman actually who um lived around i think it was peckham Mm -hmm. i think it was peckham or lewisham for years and years and years and then when it came time for her to do like a photo op she like wore a stab vest oh god walking around the Um, area and it's like fuck off
1: yeah um she introduced legislation to toughen up prostitution laws Making it a criminal Uh, offence to pay for sex with a sex worker controlled by a pimp with the possibility that anyone caught paying for sex with an illegally trafficked woman could face criminal charges. So this was like one of the first times I became aware of that um, way of criminalising sex work in a way that seems liberal. Like, oh look, I'm worried about these these enslaved women but I'm just going to push you more and more into the world of illegality. And lack of safety.
0: Yeah, that kind of thing is very much broken window policing. Yeah, that's that's pure fucking um, like neo like the kind of right wing of neoliberalism, Clintonism. Yeah, of it's only a problem because people have to see it. The real people have to see it. As long as they don't see it, it's absolutely fine, and you have freedom, no matter yeah. what happens to you if you're pushed out of sight.
1: Yeah, um, she managed to pass the forty two day detention thing um, despite heavy opposition. Probably because of stuff she knew from when from her time in the WHIPS office, um, the House of Lords overwhelmingly hated it and voted against it, saying mm. it was fatally flawed, ill thought through, and unnecessary. Um, seeks to further erode the fundamental legal and civil rights. Which is a recurring thing with the New Labour government. They do something, people that you wouldn't
0: think were left wing in the slightest say this is horribly horrible. I seem to remember it was the forty two day detention that was. Um that made Davis, David Davis' his, um, mm. kind of name.
2: Yeah. Because it's he was that
0: proper civil libertarian, mm. um, absolutely opposed to any kind of, like, the, that, that kind of extension. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then
1: around the time of the expenses scandal, there was, like, a Labour Party poll where it turned out that only 56% of the Labour Party thought she was doing a good job. Like, she, generally, <laughs> people didn't think she was doing very well. Um, yeah. The other thing that she was doing... National identity cards.
0: Do you remember them? Oh, yeah. That was another. That was another one. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um. She <laughs> announced in May two, no in May two thousand nine that they'd risen to the cost of five point three billion, and it would become compulsory first for foreign students and airport staff. And the best thing mm. about this. Planned that the car to be made available at high street shops at the estimated cost of £60, which is the most New Labour thing. Not like, send, you know, go to the post office, send in your application and the government will send it to you. You know, go to HMV, get it when you get your copy of um, The Best of Ocean Colour Scene or whatever. Um, She defended her use of high street shops. Stating that she hoped to make the enrollment in the scheme a less intimidating experience and to make the cards easier to access. So like Sixty pounds is intimidating. Yeah, but it's like the, it's like, oh look, it doesn't seem scary because you're getting it from um from Electronics Boutique or HMV. Yes. I'm trying to think of shops that were back then. It's like go get
0: your ID card ID number no, tattooed on your arm at
1: Claire's accessories.
0: Electronics boutique must have been gone by that point. Yeah, probably. I'm pretty sure it was gone by that point but also like 60 pounds is the lowest large amount of money. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely one of those ones. You know, it's yeah. not 100 pounds. Yeah. It's not 40 pounds. Yeah. It's 60 pounds. Yeah. It's right in the middle. It's the most annoying amount of money. <laughs> <clears throat>
1: um, in another privacy thing, um, the European Court of Human she was disappointed with the European Court of Human Rights decision to strike down a law allowing the government to store the DNA and fingerprints of people with no criminal record. <laughs> um, in December 2008 it was estimated that they had 850,000 such samples in England and Wales her <laughs> compromise was to scale down the length the data could be kept to a limit of 12 years it was the fact that they had to be forced to do all those things yeah. and even then 12 years <laughs> that they'll keep it because you know yeah. um, then one of her other things um, her drug policies like the loo labour and drug policies was fucking horrifying But um, like nearly every single person in Parliament who has problems with drugs, um, in the 1980s she admitted to smoking cannabis a few times at Oxford. I did break the law. I was wrong. Drugs are wrong, she said. Um, She had (laughs) lots of interactions with Professor David Nutt. Um, David Nutt, um, he reported this following exchange between Smith and himself, which is very good. Um, Jackie Smith... You cannot compare the harms of an illegal activity with a legal one. Nutt then Ask whether one shouldn't compare the harms to see if something should be illegal. Smith, after a long pause. You can't compare the harms of an illegal activity with a legal one.
0: That's absolutely fucking bang on <laughs> for the entire New Labour attitude to yep. Law and Order. It's bad because it's illegal. Yep. And that's why it's illegal. Yep. Um, Such, like, torturous logic around that.
1: Um she went against the um she went against the scientific advice to downgrade ecstasy from a class a drug saying that she
0: didn't she wasn't prepared to send a message to young people that we take ecstasy less seriously um Jack oh and- yeah cuz they're just <clears throat> hovering over the fucking legality around ecstasy when yeah. you're you know about to go and see the prodigy or whoever yeah um Smith was also widely criticised
1: by the scientific community for bullying Professor Nut into apologising for the factual comments that, in the course of a normal year, more people died from falling off horses than died from taking ecstasy. Just forcing him to apologise. <laughs> Just, uh, like, um, okay, other things. She had like a bunch of standard expenses bullshit, of you know, like lying about where she lives to make over a hundred grand, um, things like that that they always tend to do. Um, but the best one that is the thing that she will always be remembered for, which, unfortunately, she should be remembered for some of her other things. But the thing that she'll be remembered for is um, her husband, who was the one doing all of the paperwork at, at the office, um, because, yeah. like, as always, they get they employ their partners. Um, he submitted a claims report for two pornographic films, um, which she oh, said was yeah. a mistake. I think the blame was tried to push onto the sun for a bit. Um,
0: yeah, but basically that was, it was the, like
1: a whole thing of just like
0: just claiming that was for the, porn that, because that was they the, don't care. That was the yeah, that was the other thing about it. Like they're searching for who they would um, throw under the bus. Yeah, they would literally do it. They would do their own family in. Yeah, yeah. Before yeah. they would take the blame themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. Um, no. But last little thing about her because obviously she's horrible in her own right. Her husband has got nothing to do with it. Um, but in 2009, it was emerged that her husband had regularly written letters in praise of Smith to the Redditch advertiser, that's her constituency, um, failing to disclose that he was her husband or that he was employed by her. <laughs> so I thought
0: for a second there, you said like Reddit, just, <laughs> just constant pro Jackie Smith. Yeah, r slash r slash UK politics is so pro Jackie Smith. <laughs> I wonder why.
2: <laughs> I can see that. But
1: yes, yeah, so that's Jackie Smith, kind of uh, a yeah. a. Uh, uh, after, like, the, towards the end of the New Labour, era, just getting in some nasty.
0: Okay, to continue with our <laughs> Labour Home Secretary suite. This is the third <laughs> movement of our, our Home okay. Secretary suite. Uh, John Reid. There's very little to create an award-winning satirical comedy show out of with John Reed. Mm -hmm. Um, He always had this reputation as being sure-footed on TV. He could defend himself. You know, there's not really a place for him in a Thick of It style show. Um, He wasn't messianic like uh, Blunkett could be. He wasn't kind of off this planet. As regards where he was going but he absolutely epitomizes new labor late new laborism in the okay. worst way um he was a hard drinking hard smoking uh, apparently he was on 60 cigarettes a day until he quit in oh, 2002 glorious uh hard drinking hard smoking son of a lanarkshire postman Nice. he joined the communist party in university
2: nice
0: he did a phd thesis in economic history that's interesting because called- normally
1: they're in um from what I've seen of going for all these new Labour monsters, Um, they're in the Communist Party quite young. Like, Jack Straw was in a Communist Party, and then um, they all did entryism into a Labour society when
0: they went to university. Yeah. Yeah, uh, he was in the Communist Party at university. He did a, a PhD thesis in economic history called Warrior Aristocrats in Crisis, The Political Effects of the Transition from the Slave Trade to Palm Oil Commerce in the 19th Century Kingdom of Dahomey. Oh my god, Which, he's almost you. That great. But really, what, I found a copy. <laughs> yeah, but that's like, they, they're you literally your, your life course. <laughs> Um, after university, uh, John Reid joined the Labour Party as a researcher mm-hmm. and kind of slowly started to align himself with uh, the Neil Kinnock wing. Mm-hmm. In 1983, uh, he had, at Neil Kinnock's request, put on a single sheet of paper what had been about what had been making Labour so unelectable for the past few years. Okay. He put down leaderless, unpatriotic, dominated by demagogues, oh. policies fifteen years out of date. He was often described in his period as a working class intellectual. The biographies are full of him intervening in arguments against militants, correcting them on their Marx and Lenin. And I really think it's funny that like a lot of old biographies, especially of ex-leftist kind of labour yeah. grandees, they always talk about how like how much left wing theory they know, how yeah. intellectual they are, without ever actually repeating what the fuck they were arguing oh, yeah. about. I,
1: I refuse to believe they ever were. Um, not that yeah. I'd care if I was arguing with someone and they were like. And then they came in and corrected me on a bit of the Grundriser, I would be mm. like, Yeah, but I'm still right.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well the 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 purpose of putting it in there is always to demonstrate not only their not really their credentials, mm. but more like their force of personality. Yeah. Oh, and that, the, was something and, that and the lack of credentials. New label were the very left. scared of. Yeah. New label were very, very up on appearing like they had the right the right personality because it was a matter of personality putting into the right place and a matter of will. Yeah. Um, so yeah, John Reed became an MP in 1987 for Motherwell North. Um, in 1991, there was an incident where he was so drunk in the commons. He tried to force his way onto the floor to vote. And when an attendant, an ex SAS soldier stepped forward to stop him, Reed threw a punch and he was effortlessly wrestled to the ground.
1: (laughs) Fantastic.
0: Uh, he did stop drinking after that. Um, (laughs) He also grew in this period before he uh, joined the new Labour cabinet. He also grew to be great friends with Radovan Karadic, the Serbian war criminal. Um, He spent three days at a luxury Geneva lakeside hotel (laughs) as a guest of Karadic in 1993. How did they become friends? Um I believe he was somewhat involved with some of the British missions. Okay. To uh the Balkans. Okay. And uh yeah, he uh I don't know how another way to put that. He was friends with Radovan Karadžić. Like <laughs> say... more than just a passing acquaintance.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> we never meet. Be- we never become friends with like warlords.
0: <laughs> I wish. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know don't any friends those, who are tigers. I just don't. I don't move in those circles anymore. You know, anymore. maybe we need to get more. I mean, that's not how. <laughs> maybe we need to odd bits. Well, that's not how you meet warlords anymore, isn't it? It's all online. Yeah. I mean, it's really taken the kind of face-to-face personality out of being friends with warlords. <laughs> to be fair, I should just go on in a way, forums
1: know? more so I could
0: become friends with warlords. <laughs> <laughs> um, so after 1997. John Reed came to prominence with a reputation for hard drinking, hard smoking. Mm -hmm. I've said that so many times now. Uh, Ideological pragmatism. Okay. Which was exactly the kind of thing, kind of journals cream over. Mm-hmm. Uh, he held junior positions in transport in the Scottish office, Northern Ireland, where he took over from Peter Mandelson after he resigned the first time. Uh, he was chairman of the Labour Party. He was minister for health, defence, and eventually became Home Secretary in 2006. Um, the usual stuff uh, he voted for the Iraq War against the inquiry into the Iraq War. Uh, while health minister, he increased capacity for private firms to run centres for knee, hip, and eye operations. Of course, because As def-
2: fine.
0: Yep. As Defence Secretary, he committed troops to Hellman while saying they were there for reconstruction purposes mainly, but mainly seemed to be there to provide a robust defence for continuing the military actions that had already been started. Well, there's one quote where he said... All the trenches is- have
1: been destroyed, so they need to be reconstructed.
0: Well, there was one quote he said where he's like, I'd like it if we didn't have to fire a single bullet, and it's like three years later, and there's been constant attacks and constant, yeah. you know... Yeah. Um... As Home Secretary, um, he proposed a new Official Secrets Act aimed at punishing whistleblowers, particularly. Um, why would he do that? I don't understand. This <laughs> should be fine. Um, he floated a new community payback scheme to make vandals repair their damage, and oh. also floated the idea that violent offenders should pay the NHS to put their victims right. <laughs>
2: wow. To
0: repair the damage done to their victims. Okay. Um, And as with all the other Home Secretaries, really kept the terrorism ball rolling. Um, He was quoted as saying, sometimes we may have to modify some of our own freedoms in the short term in (sighs) order to prevent their misuse and abuse by those who oppose our fundamental values and would destroy Mm. all of our freedoms in the modern world, Mm. saying critics just didn't get it.
1: No, they don't. They They don't understand the real world.
0: He particularly... Palling around with warlords and drinking in the (laughs) Commons bar. Um, he railed against the European judges who passed the Chahal judgment uh, that prohibited the Home Secretary from um, deporting a uh, suspected terrorist back to his home country if uh, they were suspected that there would be human rights okay. uh, infringements there. Um, he, quote, said that media commentators gave more prominence to the views of Islamic terrorists rather than democratically elected Muslim politicians like Premier Maliki of Iraq or President <laughs> Karzai of Afghanistan. Do you remember Hamid Karzai? Yeah. Do you remember that guy who, you know, was so good at ruling that country that, you know, really brought that country together and was okay. allegedly um, a complete heroin addict towards the end of his uh of Uh, Presidential term, allegedly, as a rumor. All right, I want to stress that. I am not getting sued by (laughs) Hamid Karzai again. (laughs) Um, In the Sunday Times in October 2006, he was reported as having it in mind to strip some terror suspects of the automatic right to be protected from torture.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Which is apparently some of.
0: Which was apparently some of the freedoms that they needed to sacrifice (laughs) in the short term. If you're going to abuse your right to not be tortured, and you're going to oppose our fundamental values of torturing you, (laughs) this will destroy our freedom to torture you. Man. Um, He was also the one who introduced the terror threat levels. Um, oh, okay. The day he announced the threat level, it was at the second highest level, and that day it moved higher.
2: <laughs> yeah. Okay.
0: Um, uh, he resigned after Tony Blair left office in 2007, so actually he wasn't in, in office that long. Um, and he apparently had a close relationship with Gordon Brown earlier in his career, but for some reason had stopped talking to him uh, through the through the uh, through the years. Um, after he was in power, he uh, after he left power, he called for the creation of an independent committee to impose an annual limit on the number of immigrants entering the UK. Do not start with me on the Tories are the worst on immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, called for a much quote, mature debate on immigration and saying we have to get away from this daft, so-called politically correct notion that anybody who wants to talk about immigration is somehow a racist. He literally started laying, while he was Home Secretary, literally started laying the groundwork for the hostile environment policy.
1: Um, We've had, like, our entire lives we've been told that no one's allowed to talk about immigration.
0: And I imagine mm -hmm. it was going on long before we were born. And also the whole idea that, like, actually popularised by the thick of it, I think, that immigration that New Labour were desperate to um, tamp down on immigration rhetoric, and you know that because that yeah. last few bits of the of the thick of it, where they're going to set up an independent tribunal for immigration to not make it a political football anymore. I believe yeah. was the exact word they say, and like they're desperate because they're such scared liberals that they'll have to compromise the liberalism. Bollocks absolute fucking bollocks they had absolutely no qualms about raising immigration and race whenever they felt fucking threatened whenever the daily mail started on at them it's completely false yeah um john reed was the one who set up text messages to migrants who had outstayed their right to remain oh so they would constantly get bombarded with text messages saying you know your right to remain has run out you must leave the country um he was also the one who remade the immigration and nationality directorate. Um, he gave it a uniformed border force and new powers. This eventually became the UK border force under Theresa May. Um, he was definitely, uh, the one, he was the point man for Labour's kind of extreme, extreme anti-migrant turn when all of that rhetoric that kind of blanket had started and, and, all of those home sex had continued. Um, He was the one who started to turn it into a reality. Um, He launched plans in 2007 to make life constrained and uncomfortable for illegal immigrants. Those are his words. Sounds like a hostile environment to me. To stop them getting housing, healthcare or work, Um, And in 2007, he told BBC Breakfast, it is unfair that foreigners come to this country illegitimately and steal our benefits, steal our services like the NHS and undermine the minimum wage by working. Year on year, we are going to make it more and more difficult for them to do that. And on the same kind of theme, he told Radio 5, we are now throwing out more asylum seekers, failed asylum seekers than ever before. Like this rhetoric wasn't new, of course, like it had Mm -hmm. been going on since the 50s frankly um but by bringing it to that kind of government level mm-hmm. they're definitely not trying to defuse it they're not scared of it they're trying to use it to mobilize a base mm-hmm. and give it official sanction
2: yeah
0: and like aside from anything like you know yeah like everybody had fringe far-right groups tory opposition even other the labor governments had been talking about kind of dangerous uncontrolled migration for fucking years mm-hmm. um and yeah, according to like the Sun and the Mail, they say nothing's happening about it. It mm. it didn't it didn't work. Like none of that New Labour ramping up of immigration rhetoric worked. Mm. Um, it didn't stop anybody who thought Labour imported brown people to pad out their votes in, in the cities, which is still a thing that that they talk about. Yeah. It never addressed their legitimate concerns. Um, and kind of that was. It You know, like his main phrase that got associated with him was describing things as not fit for purpose. So he ah. came into the home office criticizing his uh, he kind of used to come into departments and say, oh, yeah, they're not fit for purpose. And you got this reputation as like a fixer. But that mm-hmm. image of him as a tough guy, as a guy who kind of solved problems, mm-hmm. that was there to be appealing to like hack libidos. Yeah. You know, in yeah, practice.
1: You've already had like, um, you know, he's a tough, hard man, and then he like yeah. swings, takes a punch, um, throws a punch, and immediately gets like taken out.
0: In practice, he was a pure short-term technocrat, yeah. Never thinking beyond the next year. Never, he never even thought to the next election cycle. Mm-hmm. He thought, never thought beyond the next year. Apparently, a study in early two thousand seven um, found John Reid failed to answer forty-four percent of questions put to him over a three-week period, as opposed to Tony Blair who failed to answer 42%. So he was better at Blair than Blair at lying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, apparently uh, when he did leave power, he um, was around six votes away from being able to challenge Gordon Brown for the leadership. Um, So he, uh, after government, he argued that uh, Cameron should be prime minister in that standoff after the hung hung election of uh, 2010. Yeah. argued that uh, Cameron should be Prime Minister. <laughs> he campaigned alongside David Cameron. So
1: good. The Labour right's so good. All they want to do is win.
0: He campaigned alongside Cameron against changing the uh, voting system to of alternative course.
2: vote. Of course he did.
0: He campaigned against Scottish independence. Of
2: course he did.
0: And in 2008, he sealed it all off, a stunning career. The ex-communist became a consultant for G4S. <laughs> Fantastic. I bring out John Reid there are a lot of authoritarian um, Home Secretaries, so he's, yeah. not, he's not any different. I'm not going to say whether he's better or worse, but he's not any different to any of those other Home Secretaries we've already mentioned. What he is is a perfect example of not just writing off like bad outcomes in New Labour to incompetence.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, the worst of New Labour wasn't a failure in, of intelligence or a failure of nerve or a failure to estimate how people were really feeling about things. At worst, it was this absolute arrogance in the belief mm. that they were better because they had learned to kind of compromise, and that's John Reed.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: He was better because he had learned to compromise and learned how to get things done, and that made him morally better than everyone else.
2: Yeah. Check, check it out. Check us out. Come on. Come on. Come on.
1: Okay. Next one, I like, like he was obviously going to turn up, Mandelson, <laughs> Mandelson, yeah. um, another Labour lifer. Um, he'd left mm-hmm. the Labour Party. Oh, he'd left because he said it was too left wing. I think, like in the eighties. Um,
0: yeah, because wasn't he? He was an MP for Hartlepool, I think, wasn't
1: he? Yeah, he was, but not in the eighties. Like he didn't get to be an MP until ninety two. Ah yeah. uh, right, yeah 92 I was remember
0: in my in my primary school library we had a book on politics and it had yeah. a picture of him when yeah. he had that tash <laughs> yeah
1: um he didn't like John Smith John Smith didn't like him he's yeah. a strong supporter of the EU um in particular its stances are against protectionism and the free movement of <laughs> capital <laughs> particularly
0: all of this money
1: yeah that's the thing that's a recurring thing for like we've had some other ones who are like full on authoritarians peter mandelson i'm not sure how much of an authoritarian he was but he did like money and he liked a... near people with money and he liked helping people with money or people who were near to money <laughs> um like so he helped blair win he was the one that you know it was him and mandelson who were like him and, um, him, him and Campbell, who were the ones that made, helped him win, he was the one that helped he was... Blair become leader. Um, he, they had to hide that he was working for Blair to get for his leadership bid. Because really? he was so reviled by the party that they thought that people wouldn't vote for Blair
0: because of his involvement. I wonder, did he think John Smith was too left-wing?
1: I think he did. <laughs> um, wow. Um, My goodness! Like I think Blair said that he'd considered like his time in the Labour Party a success if the Labour Party came to appreciate Peter Mandelson. And when I think it was like a conference in two thousand eight, someone, someone, something like that. It was like one of it was like one of the conferences around two thousand eight, two thousand ten, maybe it was something like that. Um, when the Labour membership was at its lowest, that <laughs> all that were left were the hardcore, true believers in the New Labour project. He was cheered finally at conference. Well, that's
0: after presumably after they'd um, frog marched everybody else out, like they did to that um, German peace activist.
1: Yeah, yes, yes, exactly. Um, Mm. Who was he? Was he was was, um, taken out for heckling Jack Straw? I think. Yeah, it was. Comes up, who will come up later? Um, So Mandy was appointed as minister without portfolio. That's the the good job where you do anything you want and nothing is your fault. Um, yep. He acquired responsibility for the Millennium Dome, a thing that him and Blair were really oh. obsessed with, despite the fact that the Secretary of State for Cultural, Media and Sport was not for it. <laughs> Most of the
0: cabinet were against it.
1: It oh, was a There's, a, there's thing. an
0: episode in the Millennium Dome, I think. Yeah, there's the a couple of things
1: time. that will There's a couple of things that um that I think that should we should do an episode on. But yeah, the Millennium Dome, which um on opening night the chief executive oh. was sacked because it was. A, <laughs> failure a massive failure.
0: All, all you would all you would hear um for the three years leading up to the millennium
2: mm-hmm.
0: was that this was the biggest white elephant it was a. Yep. I uh, i think they regarded it as like it would be the thing that spearheaded the idea of gentrification that yeah. you could rescue these like depressed um like industrial wastelands and mm-hmm. that was everything that they were going to do did mm. you we won't get sidetracked here carry on no carry on did you ever go to the Millennium Dome before it became the O2 Arena? Did you ever go to it in its like no, original incarnation? I've been incarnation? to the Millennium
1: Dome twice: one to the Metal Hammer Golden Gods Awards, and the other time to see an <laughs>
0: ICW wrestling show. And I, I actually went yeah. up uh, when it was in its original incarnation. Oh. Um, I don't actually remember so much of it. Imagine, imagine Sega World. Yep. The Trocadero. Yep but with absolutely no fun. <laughs> like there yes. was a, like there was a lot of things there that were meant to make you feel humble in a social and spiritual way. Yeah. But it it couldn't work out whether it wanted to be a playground or like the 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 kind of crest of a symphony. <laughs> you know? Yep. Do you know you know what I mean? Like it it could not work out what it meant to be, but it's absolutely Perfect new (laughs) Labour.
1: Yes, that's the thing. And it's not surprising that it's one of the only things other than just being near people with money that he was ever passionate about in government. Mm. In 96, Mandelson bought a home in Notting Hill with an interest-free loan of £373,000 for a man called Geoffrey Robinson, who was a cabinet Mm -hmm. colleague and a millionaire whose business dealings were subject to an inquiry by Mandelson's department. Um, That's probably fine. He said there was there was nothing wrong with that. Um he had <laughs> nothing nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. He didn't tell the um he didn't tell his building society where the money came from. He hadn't declared the loan um in the register of <laughs> med- members' interests. He just was like, it's fine, it's fine. Um but that was the first time he had to stand down. <laughs> oh yeah. Um he was only out for ten months though, because he came back in October nineteen ninety nine as the Secretary
0: of State for Northern Ireland, or as he put it, the Secretary of State oh, wow. for Ireland oh boy yeah i remember that because the first because everyone was waiting for when mandelson would be ousted because it was so clear that he was dodgy to in in kind of popular parlance yeah and then he went and it was this big victory of like yes we've got corruption out and it felt like ages before he came back but yeah 10 months really 10 months um and
1: then he was secretary of state for northern ireland for a bit and then in 2001 he had to resign again um (laughs) He had to resign the second time because he was trying to get um, uh, he was trying to use his position to influence a passport application for oh, I can't pronounce it. Um, it's Sri the Hinduja Chan- brothers, yeah, yeah, for for the Hinduja brothers, who were yeah. the um, main sponsors of the faith zone in the Millennium Dome. <laughs> the <laughs> oh, Millennium yeah. Dome came back to haunt him. Um, <laughs> so he tried to do that. Um, they were at that time um, under investigation by the Indian government for alleged involvement in the Beaufort scandal which was a banking scandal, I believe. Yeah. Um, He insisted he'd done nothing wrong. He was exonerated by an independent inquiry, but then he still resigned. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He then stood down as an MP, went to work for the European Commission, and did, you know, the kind of things that you do when you're in the European Commission, like maintain friendships with Russian oligarchs who (laughs) um, have... um, who are like own aluminium co- um, companies and you're making decisions about aluminium tariffs and things like that which he didn't do anything <laughs> yeah. wrong he didn't do anything wrong no, he didn't do anything wrong, it's fine it's fine, it's fine also when he was um, he was, uh, um, was, working at the EU, um, he did spend New Year's Eve on the yacht of Paul
0: Allen the co-founder of Microsoft when they were under investigation by the EU yeah, that was the monopoly, the years of the monopoly investigations into yeah. um Microsoft, wasn't it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, So, you know, that's his time in the EU. But then he comes storming back into politics. He comes storming back. Wow. You know, but he's not an MP. He's not an elected official. So it's okay. They just make him a lord. Um, Yep. And then he's he's back in. He's in Gordon Brown's cabinet. Um, (laughs) It's around this time where he starts getting really into um, punishment for people who are pirating films and music um oh. which had nothing well, to do nothing that. to do with well he wanted to introduce um, s- technical measures such as internet disconnection for people found guilty <laughs> um this was going to be in the this is in the digital economy act
0: wait are you telling me he turned into a mini home secretary
1: yes he did <laughs> because <laughs> this but the thing is he says that this had nothing to do oh. with with something he did um lots of there's lots of um things of freedom of information requests and other little things that have found out that maybe he's lying Um, But he had a meeting um, with DreamWorks co-founder David Geffen at the Rothschilds family villa on the Greek island of Corfu. Apparently before this, he had absolutely no interest in anything to do with the internet, but then came back really insistent (laughs) that (laughs) harsh punishment should happen um that was this was the time as well
0: i mean i don't know if you remember when uh it was reported because obviously gordon brown was not as close to mandelson as blair was no and him like gordon brown had gone through the first year of gordon brown's thing was like an unmitigated success yeah like everyone was like if you declare an election now you'll win a landslide because the tories were genuinely fucking terrible at that point under um, david cameron um they genuinely thought that if he did if he if Gordon Brown did an election, uh he would get back in with a landslide. And then all the wheels came off with the credit crunch, all yeah. of that kind of stuff. And then the years of torment really began. And I remember it being reported as like Mandelson coming back in was like a last minute compromise to try and get some of the old magic back. Yeah. Try and get the band back yeah. together. Yeah. Um, really was.
1: Yeah. Um other things, um he there were there was a Freedom of Information request uh, that found letters from Mandelson's office, um, documents, talks with Lucian Grange, CEO of Universal Music Group. Um, there's lots of, you know, him... To, basically, this is a recurring thing with Peter Mandelson. Not that he does anything particularly horrendous, apart from anything that a rich person asks him to do.
0: Yeah. Um, but he was the one who, of course, coined the phrase that... Um, New Labour wanted to be was intensely relaxed about people getting rich. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, that he's happy with that, and that is the recurring thing with him. Um, the you get that like little things like that. They never. There's a thing that I can't remember who's where I've heard where I heard it before, but there's um this thing about how British politicians are very cheap. They're very yeah. cheap. Um, yeah. And it's not hard. You and look at it.
0: You look at it even now. If there's, um, if when there's, a, whenever there's Tory corruption, mm-hmm. you look at it, and it's like, oh yeah, it's three thousand pounds.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's about you know,
0: or a, tri- a trip to the to Ascot.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you know, like a yeah. day trip. Yeah, oh, they put him on a bus. But yeah, that's Peter Mandelson, the ideological driving. What are the ideological driving forces of the New Labour yeah, project? Yeah, he definitely and all it was. He I really, oh yeah, so during, I think it's around this time that, you know, he's hanging around with Jeffrey Epstein and things like that, which is also a thing that needs to be (laughs) remembered. Yeah.
0: Um, Yeah, he was always, he was the, he had a hand in the kind of ideological genesis of New Labour, but he was mainly the one who then put that, like, he was the link between the ideology such as it was, Mm -hmm. the theory and the practice. Mm -hmm. Because he was actually in, in the cabinet, yeah. and And, I mean, people hated him from when he got in. He was considered, you know, the poisoned, like the poison advisor.
1: Yeah. Oh, you know, here's the, the thing as well. Listen, the bad thing, nice thing with regards that I, I thought was important when he was when he was a lord. So he was unelected. He's in the cabinet. He was part of out of 43 cabinet committees and subcommittees. He was part of 35 of them. <laughs> and like, I'm pretty certain that a lot of like. The David Cameron stuff of um, unelected bureaucrats and quangos and stuff like that. In people's heads, that's him. That's Peter Mandelson. Yeah. And well, it was very helped. interesting
0: because I remember uh, there was that picture going around in Cameron's early years mm-hmm. of wasn't he on like Nathan Rothschild's yacht with Peter Mandelson? Probably. Do you remember there was all like that? They both went and visited the same oligarchs at the same time.
1: Oh yeah, there's there's um, a lot of the oligarch visits all seem to be on like yachts or villas around Corfu. Yeah,
0: yeah. In fact, interestingly, that uh, kerfuffle with Boris Johnson a few weeks ago about him going to um, Perugia was it? Perugia. Perugia. That is the standard trade route for uh, going to visit. Shit, who is it? It's some one of the Russian oligarchs that a lot of them go to visit.
1: Well, um, Lebedev has his place in Perusia, doesn't he?
0: That's right, it's Lebedev,
1: sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He has a place in Peru. Yeah, Big yeah. family house. So that,
0: that it's the it's it's like a trade route.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's Mandy. Check,
2: check it out, check us out.
0: Next, we have someone in a very similar vein.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, this was my dark horse, because when I started to look into him, um, mm-hmm. it really became evident that he had, uh, he had a particular penchant for the rich as well. Uh, maybe not rich individuals, but certainly rich corporations. I'm talking about Alan Milburn. I
2: have no idea. So
0: he started as junior minister for health in 1997. Um, pushing through PFI deals for hospitals. Mm -hmm. Uh, He became full Secretary of State for Health in 1999. In 2000, he proposed NHS Plus, which is the most new Labour name you could give to something.
2: (laughs) Um,
0: Essentially the idea for for NHS Plus. The NHS would pitch a privatised service to employers to compete with private health providers for that market, making a profit, which would then go back into public sector provision. It's like trying to it's like trying to say you're not privatizing the nhs but you're on the nhs's side by teaching it reverse psychology <laughs> his pitch about this nhs plus service was basically hinting oh booper they're fucking terrified of you
2: yeah <laughs> they're really scared <laughs> of the nhs
0: and you know not really stopping to think that providing private health care for profit would turn the nhs into a private health care provider yeah you know Not really not really thinking that well, definitely Mm -hmm. thinking that one through. But um, in 2002, he introduced the NHS Foundation Trusts. Um, This idea was based on Milburn's trip to a Spanish hospital, um, which was built by the Spanish nationalized health system. Mm -hmm. But operational management was contracted out to a private company. Um, It's essentially the same thing that they eventually did to schools. You push this vague idea of responsiveness, flexibility, choice, independence, all those great words, at the cost of actually fragmenting the benefits of a nationalised service, which is buying and providing collectively. That's what makes that cheap.
2: Yeah.
0: he basically uh, subjected these foundation trusts to artificially imposed market conditions. These services are put into competition with other private services and other nationalized hospitals, but they're kept in this weird fake market. So they get fined and they get like financial penalties for missing targets. Um, Milburn originally planned to give foundation hospitals full financial autonomy, essentially splitting them off from the health trusts hmm. and turning them into like profitable little islands, ready, essentially ready to be cobbled up by private providers.
2: Uh-huh. Um,
0: this into this like full financial autonomy was actually blocked by Gordon Brown. Um, uh, Milburn also allowed these newly independent foundation hospitals to borrow money <coughs> and establish mm-hmm. their own private companies <coughs> And allowed them to have the ability to go into bankruptcy. Oh fantastic. <laughs> um, one of the one of the points that he made in in like positive points he made from these foundation trusts is that they would be able to pay their own staff above national rates because they were autonomous. Huh. Yeah, that definitely happened. That definitely happened to every single industry. Yep. Lots of industries definitely <laughs> see their staff pay go up when they're subjected to market forces. Definitely.
2: Mm-hmm. Um Remember, by
0: 2006, I remember being Sorry, told a lot. It was a lot of um, uh, just you know, um,
1: privatized healthcare treats nurses better. I, I, I've heard I heard that a lot when I was a young trainee nurse and stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, and you know, the success of this policy was that by 2006, the NHS was spending more on consultants than the entire British manufacturing sector. Oh. Um. And basically allowed hospitals to, with the PFIs and with the foundation statuses, um, allowed hospitals to get swallowed up in private sector contracts, building massive, expensive hospitals. Um, you know, lifetime no, no failure uh, contracts. Um, all the stuff with Serco and Capita and all of them, those service provision companies, and it just bleeds like it bleeds the NHS dry. They, they new Labour people will always boast about. Um, You know, putting more funding into the NHS. And it's true. They did. And actually, you know, a lot of the tests for um, like cancer rates and things like that did go down during New Labour. But you're you're opening it up and making it this massive, tempting target, Mm. which, to be honest, seems to have been Milburn's intent. Um, because he actually resigned as a minister in 2003, very early on, to, mm. quote, spend more time with his family, which mm. this is interesting. Mm. Did you know um, that Alan Milburn's family is actually uh, he's actually related to the Bridgepoint Capital Group, which is a venture capital group <laughs> um, and its majority shareholder son, uh, Care UK, a leading <laughs> provider of services to the NHS? It's weird, isn't it? He just wanted to spend more time with his family, he's very family oriented there. <laughs> just board um, of, of a company. His interesting thing is that he what he did after being a minister. Right. So um, he was an advisor to Pepsi on its nutritional advisory board. Um, By the time he stood down from Parliament in uh, 2010, he stayed on for seven years just as an MP.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, By the time he stood down from Parliament, he was earning one hundred and fifteen thousand pounds a year just from his advisory roles. Nice. Nice. So he was just an MP through all that time. Seven yeah. years, no, no ministerial. He'd done he'd done his stuff. He'd cracked he cracked yeah. open the egg and you know everyone feasted on it. Mm-hmm. Um, after he stood down, he became social mobility czar for the Tory Lib Dem Coalition, publishing a report called Unleashing Aspiration. Nice. One that's, of the blandest documents yeah. ever produced. It's an absolute masterclass in centrist and meritocratic ideology. Uh, He contributed to the Purple Book in 2011, along with Ed Miliband, Mandelson, Liam Byrne, Jackie Smith, and others. Mm -hmm. Uh, In his section of the book, he proposed a policy of educational credit. Families whose kids were in underperforming schools could withdraw their children and get funding worth 150% the cost of education at the failing school, with the money coming out of the budget of the failing school. (laughs)
1: because that's what happens <laughs> at school when um when the parents of let's face it the upper middle class ones who mm-hmm. are their kids who they think their kids aren't being treated well enough um it's it's always good when the parents of those kids just start taking money away from the schools
0: <laughs> um He continued on in 2013. He joined PricewaterhouseCoopers as chair of its UK health industry oversight board. Mm -hmm. Guess what that does? It, Mm -hmm. quote, drive to drive change in the health sector and assist PwC in growing its presence in the NHS. Uh, He's also. (coughs) 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 Sorry about that. He was also a member of the healthcare advisory panel at Lloyd's Pharmacy. Uh, In 2015, he criticised Labour's health plans, which would have limited private sector involvement in the NHS. Um, He described Miliband and Ed Ball's plans to restore the 50p tax rate as anti-business. Why wouldn't he?
2: Um,
0: Yeah, Uh, (laughs) he is possibly the most venal new Labour politician I mean, this wasn't like it. New Labour's always presented early on as this reluctant appeasement of the market. You know, we can't beat the market, so we have to join it. This wasn't appeasement. He fully embraced it. Mm. And he did absolutely did the most to follow through on that behavior after after politics. If maybe if you don't count Tony Blair and Peter Mandelson. Mm. Um, And it's not even just that he did all his shilling after cabinet. He didn't. He was still drawing a wage as an MP until 2010. I mean talk about what your constituency want or your CLP yeah. you know whether they really want uh you know they want active MPs and MPs yeah. are so important. Yeah. Is that what they wanted? Yeah. Did anybody really question the idea that this man was basically um privatizing the NHS while he was still in the in an MP. You know? And I mean it's pretty obvious that from these reforms they set the table for the the Lansley reforms yeah. and the the Health and Social Care Act in 2012. The clinical commissioning groups that were created out of GP practices by that act hmm. what modeled on foundation hospitals hmm. they they're run like businesses, they're subject to penalties they're not fully privatized, but essentially they're in the control of the administrators of that practice, which is the same as, as foundation hospitals yeah um, and as I said, even if you did pump the NHS full of money, it was only to make it a more attractive prize for <laughs> the eventual privatization of it yeah you know, by just, the time you' doing it up before you sell it. 'Cause frankly, like by the time opposition was, you know, finally crystallizing against the, the Lansley reforms in the two thousand twelve act, the NHS was already in many places functionally private. Yeah. Or at least it operated as if it was private. Yeah. And yeah, Alan Milburn, it, to me, is just this utterly wretched example of the new Labour political class that was spawned by their tenure. There's so many of them. It's not even questioned. Mm. You know, you talk about Jess Phillips takes, you know, a certain amount of money or, you know, somewhat like some MP takes a certain amount of money. It's just, it's not even questioned anymore. Yeah. Even ostensibly socialist Labour MPs. Yeah. Check it out. Check us out.
2: Come on, come on, come on. <laughs>
1: Okay. Next one. This is a big one. First one, well, second Ooh. one who didn't who wasn't in office um for mm. a bit, but this one never held office because actually he probably could have been elected. Um He was too good. Yeah. Um Alistair Campbell. He has to be in it. We were, wow, we were I'm yeah. arguing about whether he could be in it, whether we should just go for MPs. But you know, yeah. none of them could have been, could have done all of this. Yeah if it hadn't been for this Horrible. He was
0: certainly the most visible the most visible figure in that period yeah. and obviously he has the probably the largest reputation outside of blair. Yeah. In, and, as in new labor. Even um, Gordon Brown is probably eclipsed by him.
1: Yeah, and we should probably we could probably do um something more on him before labor like that stuff with um, him when he was a journalist and um how much he liked
0: uh Robert Maxwell, yeah. Yeah,
1: that's like I think, I'm sure, like his admiration for Robert Maxwell is part of him and why he <laughs> is the way he is. But anyway, so Tony Blair, elected leader of the Labour Party in 94, Campbell left today to become Blair's press secretary. Um, he was a recovering, he just recovered from being an alcoholic and had moved on, he's a teetotaler. Um, mm. Blair's all fine with this, it's all good. And... In Blair's autobiography reveals that Campbell coined the term New Labour, and um, he's the one that wrote the speech that led to the party's review of Clause Four, and so essentially New huh. Labour. He's
0: because this would have only been a few years after. It presumably would have been about six years after he punched punched someone for making fun of Maxwell, right?
1: Yeah, come yeah. a long way. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm. So he was, you know, he was speechwriter, strategist general shouty man um yeah. like although so head of
0: head of communications was his yeah. official title i think that yeah. was
1: once once um once um tony blair became prime minister um him and mandelson were the ones who worked together to get the election victory um they apparently worked very well together all the reports i've read is that they were both very shouty men for the very of the same kind um yeah you know part of the push to win the support of the sun and the rest of that yeah. lot, and we all know what they did to get that. Um, yeah. So, um so yeah, he becomes head of communications for the new yeah. Prime Minister, Tony Blair. Um mm. he modernises Downing Street's operation based off kind of what how he ran um Tony Blair's office in opposition, where there was yeah. a thing called the grid, which was like this used as like rabbit a rap rapid rebuttal unit. So, you'd yeah. always be out there to get your version of events and to deny and to obfuscate <clears throat> and stuff like that, which is just a thing now which everyone does all the time, which yeah. leads now to was it this morning? Um, f- oh, I've forgotten his name. Uh, Tory MP saying the reason, um, like, questioning Boris Johnson must messing up on that announcement about the rule changes and like questioning him on that is
0: um, gotcha journalism, the gotcha yeah. journalism of Nick Ferrari. <laughs> Very common rebuttal in the new Labour time as well.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, I think um, there was something I remember because we actually, it actually made its way into, I think, my A-level politics stuff. Yeah. He had, rather than going, the reason why he could get stuff out so quickly was because rather than traditionally, press relations were handled by kind of civil servants. Mm. So there'd be a couple of, of, a few teams of civil servants around the prime minister who would handle his particular, communications, I think what he did was he they set up I think it was literally called the office of number 10 and -hmm. they basically used it as this kind of guerrilla outfit where they could just hire in political consultants Mm -hmm. and use them to make statements bypassing the civil service and all of the strictures that they're under
1: Yeah Um, Mm -hmm. It was around like the start of all of this, there was a documentary made about him, um, about his media operation which annoyed him, and he thought there was too much attention being put on him, so he stepped back a bit and became more of a man behind the shadows, less being the one to actually phone the paper to say the things. Yeah, Um, yeah. uh, Interesting fact, he was sponsored by George Bush to complete the London Marathon in aid of a leukaemia charity called Bloodwise, which I just think is funny, because of the amount of blood those two have shed together.
0: Um, (laughs) Well, to be fair, George Bush probably needed it, you know, the adrenochrome and everything.
1: (laughs) So... He became as he was one of the central figures around dealing with the press after Diana's death, um, and he was one of the ones that was helping the royal family with making them seem less horrible. Because yeah. you've got to remember, like the royal family were despised then. Like
0: yeah, it got it got very close to outright treason.
1: Yeah, um, and if anything could, um, and if and if anyone was going to step in to help them, of course it would be a Labour government um yeah, but obviously yeah, the main yeah. thing he did is the iraq war that's it it's it, it's that yeah. that's that, that's it it's like there's all the stuff he did about like you know smooth making the a slick media operation and controlling yeah. the press and all that kind of stuff which allowed them to do horrible things but him personally it's the dossier it's the dossier that he still refuses he sticks by as think um as of 2011 he'd been involved in six inquiries and still defended every word of the dossier yeah um, Even though it's
0: been proven to be based on faulty information. Yeah,
1: in 2003, commenting on WMDs in Iraq, Campbell said, Come on, you don't seriously think we won't find anything. Some say <laughs> still he's still waiting. there today, looking for them. <laughs> um, there's a lot of stuff to do with the death of Dr. David Kelly and the way the government used him as like a pawn. I think that's a whole episode that we could yeah, do that's... on the death of Dr. David Kelly.
0: Yeah, suffice it to say he contributed to the report, uh, was outed in the media as um sp- like it's suggested that Alistair Campbell pinned a lot of the blame for the mistakes slash lies in it on him. Uh David Kelly was then found having t- taken his own life in a, a field near his home. Yep. I say that advisedly because there's a strong conspiracy element to that, but again, that's a that's a whole other episode.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's 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 um, Alastair Campbell. There's not much more to say about him because everyone knows what he is.
0: He's still fucking there. Yeah. He's still people's there vote. doing his Remain thing, yeah. his people's vote thing. What's the latest? Basically, one? The, kind of meddling. The, um, one rule for them. was one rule. One rule for them, yeah. which seems to be that's come up in the last week. That seems to be some kind of astroturfed anti. Tory, roughly anti-Tory thing that's basically got a crowdfunder attached to it. Yeah. So what they're raising money for is I have no
1: idea. Adverts that look 15 years out of date. You know, that the person in the (laughs) pocket, it just looks so old. Ah yes. But yeah, that's Alistair Campbell. Check it
2: out. Check us out.
0: Next person. So, like, old New Labour figures now, they tended to have followed two paths after 2010. I would say, like, a slim majority of those people resent being called, like, Blairites Mm -hmm. or New Labour. Yeah. Sometimes they do this because they feel pigeonholed or they feel it's inaccurate or they feel as if Blairism wasn't a fleshed-out concept. Either way, it's a cause to get defensive about Mm -hmm. the kind of legacy of New Labour. For those who actually engage with the legacy of New Labour... Um, and seek to distance themselves or reject it, they most often follow the path of my next guy- my next candidate for worst new labor person, david goodhart mm-hmm. so his idea is basically that modern labor rightism um needs and modern liberalism in a wider sense needs to be more apologetic for the things it thinks new labor got wrong in the long 90s, New Labour as the vehicle for liberalism.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so his main tie to New Labour was the founder of Prospect magazine, which is often referred to as the, the New Labour House Journal.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, in 2004, he published an article in Prospect called Is Britain Becoming Too Diverse? And this article kind of took aim at New Labour's kind of liberal attitude and in liberal governance in general. Mm -hmm. Uh, quoted in the article he said britain in the 1950s was a country stratified by class and region but in most of its cities suburbs towns and villages there was good chance of predicting the attitudes even the behavior of the people living in your immediate neighborhood the category own kind or in group will set alarm bells ringing in the minds of many readers (laughs) in complex societies most of us simultaneously belong to many those we to many Those we include in our group can be a pretty diverse crowd, especially in London. (laughs) You may have uh, you may have noticed the kind of tone there. It's fairly light and fairly accepting (laughs) of multiculturalism and diversity, but it's starting to hedge over (laughs) into something different. Uh, He also said newcomers can and should adopt the history of their new country as well over Mm -hmm. time, contributing to it, moving from immigrant them to citizen us. (laughs) Helpfully, Britain's story includes through empire, the story of many of our immigrant groups, (sighs) empire soldiers, for example, fought in many of the wars that created modern Britain. Is there a tipping point somewhere between Britain's 9% ethnic minority population and America's 30%, which creates a wholly different US-style society with sharp ethnic divisions, a weak welfare state, and low political participation? <laughs> um, I yeah, like this the, article. where the of... low political participation comes from. Yeah. And also, as if low welfare support in the US was due to elites not being able to get the white working class on side with giving things to non-whites. It's like that is part of it, but mainly it's because they didn't want to give anything to anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, And basically he starts arguing uh, from 2004 that Britain's welfare state could not afford to be so generous if it kept letting in foreigners. Um, In this regard, it kind of aligns with some of the other anti-migrant rhetoric you've seen from from new Labour figures. Um, Early on he had mainly an economic argument that Britain could afford, couldn't afford to be so generous with its welfare state. And I don't know what he's fucking talking about because the welfare state has never been that generous Mm -hmm. with the exception of the NHS. Um, but as he moves on, um, as New Labour kind of dies and the Conservative comes come in, um, he abandons any pretense of it being about economics. He even admits it in his 2013 book, The British Dream, uh, that immigration has little to no effect on employment in the short term or the long term, especially when compared with other factors like technological change and minimum wage. Then he starts ra- uh, kind of rattling on about culture. Hmm. And he starts with that soft edge um of the implications of valuing ethno-national ties over others Hmm. Um, you know just asking questions i'm just saying people people like to be around people who are like them you know who speak the same language people don't like hearing other languages other than english on buses (laughs) is this a problem Mm, just asking questions Um, by 2009 he's gone fully fully nativist Uh, In 2009, he called neocon Christopher Caldwell's writing about Muslims as conquering Europe's cities street by street, he describes as brilliant. Um, His main kind of arc uh, has really came around with his 2017 book, uh, The Road to Somewhere, The Populist Revolt and the Future of Politics. This is where he got quite a lot of mainstream um, attention mm-hmm. uh, he in the book he explains that the main division in british society was between anywheres autonomous mobile individualist kind of people who've done well uh, under globalization and somewheres rooted traditional their identities tied to a nation and group identity mm-hmm. um you know, never he did. He his research is notoriously faulty. He doesn't look at kind of internal migration. He is an Oxbridge, Eton educated academic who basically is blaming Eton, Oxford educated academics for <laughs> everything else. And it's got that classic kind of New Labour, like later New Labour guilt.
2: Hmm.
0: That guilt at kind of almost. I mean, this isn't this isn't in Goodhart's case because Eton educated son of a Tory uh, Tory MP um a a certain no less um but it's often kind of tied in with that like guilt that guilt that subconsciously you've left behind your working class origins and you don't really know yeah what that's like anymore and so you kind of project yeah you know you kind of project what being working class actually is and you know like his is very much around culture um you know in all of his writings he could just say rootless cosmopolitans and dispel any kind of oh no wait he did (laughs) <laughs> yes, that's fine. He, he does. He actively just says that now. Uh, identity politics is the end. It's you know a temporary fad. Whereas the yeah. identity politics of whoever he particularly happens to be talking about, um, and talking about by the way, never to He, he there's no there's no uh, part of that. Um, and let's just say that his idea of a rooted and authentic existence is heavily dependent on him telling people what rootedness consists of. Namely, empire, race, and conservative values. Fantastic. Um, obviously, he's not the first liberal to turn racist. I mean, look yeah. at the actual history of all of liberalism.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, but this way of thinking right now, it has the rubber stamp of a member of that cognitive elite it criticizes.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, He is the absolute standard for getting on a program and going, look, here's a liberal. And even he thinks multiculturalism has gone too far. Yeah. Um, He really broke into the mainstream when Theresa May adopted his rhetoric at her conference speech in 2007, (laughs) I think it was, saying, she said, if you weren't a citizen of somewhere, you're a citizen of nowhere, which... You know, is the implicit endpoint of dividing people into anywheres and somewheres because if you're a citizen of nowhere, that's the void. That's yeah. death. That's the implicit thing: is those people need to be not there. Mm-hmm. Um, he told the New York Times just before the 2017 election that he believed Theresa May could dominate British politics for a generation. Um, <laughs> and in 2018, he said the only thing wrong with the hostile environment policy is its awful name. He's <laughs> recently. He's recently released a book called Head Hand Heart which says that the oh. uh, knowledge economy has gone too far and we need more people who with empathic and practical skills not him of course yeah. not him no he mm-hmm. needs to he needs to keep doing i think he works at the policy exchange still he, he needs. needs to keep producing papers and books and things like that but everyone else mm-hmm. you need to be better with your hands and with your heart yeah um so yeah th- i mean obviously the extent to his involvement with new labor is he was a fully paid up supporter of new labor, a kind of prominent bit. I mean, I wouldn't say prospect magazine was prominent, but it was certainly what, you know, one of the major places where like Tony Blair was published and, and, you know, Gordon Brown and people yeah. like that. Um, but since new labor ended, he has really one of been one of the people who set the mold for so-called post liberalism.
2: Yeah.
0: And You can either see him as, yeah, he's a New Labour guy who got that authoritarian anti-migrant streak, which, as I said, is less likely as he's an Oxbridge Don Mm -hmm. and the son of a Sir Tory MP. Mm -hmm. Or he's probably what I think is a deeper problem, which is with liberalism itself, the way that it's acquiesced to this far-right ethno-nationalism on behalf of a guilty liberal class who they felt pushed modernity too far during New Labour's era. Mm-hmm. They don't really understand or wish to engage with the reformulations and the changes that the working class has gone through. They don't want to engage with that directly, but they would prefer to impose their own insecurities on them as an excuse for fighting their own struggles domestically and within the framework of global capitalism.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, he has, to a certain extent, unlocked a whole swathe of liberal center opinion makers to go absolutely bonkers with far-right fascism i'm thinking of like the unheard crowd you know the yeah. Matt goodwins the giles frazier's the unheard the commun- the communitarian right that was a that was a big new labor phrase in the beginning they were going to be communitarian and that has now mutated or perhaps logically ended up as its logical endpoint of being essentially ethno-nationalist um, he's maybe a first mover in that regard, yeah. but he's certainly an exemplar of what's probably the most frightening movement stemming from the New Labour era. Yeah,
2: um,
0: And he still gets, as with all of the New Labour figures from that era, he still gets into print. He still gets invited on Newsnight. Every book will be poured over by every reviewer, and yeah. it's impossible to get away with him. Mm. Get away from him.
1: Another Home Secretary now. Um, I think have we covered? I think, buddy, and we've covered all of the Home Secretaries. <laughs> the,
0: like, they fire. do tend to be the worst. Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> okay. So Jack Straw. Um, before he was Home Secretary, just to like give you a hint of the kind of Home Secretary that he would become, he was in he was in um, in the Shadow Cabinet in from eighty seven. Oh um, wow! yeah. So yeah, he's in there for a while. Um one of um he was like one of the main reasons that he believed that labor you know was damaged in the past was because they were soft on crime. Ah, yes, he developed a reputation for being even more authoritarian than the then home sec- conservative home secretary michael howard um <laughs> Straw- Michael
0: Howard flirted with not prison abolition but certainly something in that direction for uh, like about three months. <laughs> Straw garnered
1: particular attention for comments condemning. Aggressive beggars, winos, and squeegee merchants. and calling Squeegee
2: for, merchants?
1: Yep. And calling for a curfew on children. <laughs> Which, that's... What? Just completely? Just a curfew on children. Just a curfew. Just, you know, they're not allowed out <laughs> after a certain time. Fucking kids. You know what they're like. They are caught smoking weed. That was his kid, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. 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 Um, okay, so he gets made home secretary in 97. Um, brought forward the Regulation Investigatory Powers Act 2000, which increased police powers against terrorism and promo- proposed to remove the right to trial by
0: jury in certain cases. Ah, uh, yes, because juries cannot be trusted to see complex yeah. evidence. About squeegee merchants? That was the whole thing, yeah. Um, also, like, what is his, his idea of kind of the underclasses mm-hmm. from, like, coming to America? Or, like, um, fucking, uh, what's it called? Uh, trading places? Yeah. Yeah, um, these policies of his won praise from Margaret Thatcher,
1: who once declared, "I would trust Jack. I would trust Jack Straw's judgment. He is a very fair man."
0: <laughs> so, it doesn't strike me as fair. I'll yeah. be honest.
1: Um, they were deemed excessively authoritarian by his former student union, which in two thousand banned him from the building. Um, nice. Yeah, that was the one that um, that he joined. He joined like this Labour student union. Um, He was a communist. He left the Communist Party, joined this student union, disaffiliated from the Labour Party and made it a socialist student union, I think, and then was banned from it. In June '97, he appointed Lord Justice Stuart Smith to conduct a review of the need for a new public inquiry on Hillsborough, Um, but he indicated to the judge at the outset that in the view of his officials, there was not sufficient evidence to justify a new inquiry. This is in huh. contrast to what he told Parliament, which was, I am determined to go as far as I can to ensure that no matter of significance is overlooked and that we do not reach a final conclusion without a full and independent examination of the evidence. He'd also given the families of victims full assurances that he intended a thorough examination. He apologised. Fucking scumbag. Yep, like literally as soon Fucking as it got into him... shit. Yeah, because I remember it was a thing that, you know, was part of their election stuff. Um, yeah. In March 2000, he was responsible for allowing former Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet to return to Chile <laughs> because of health, because of medical grounds. Um, he was um, so he wouldn't face trial; <laughs> just let go. Home.
0: <laughs> yeah, so it's very important that he be let go, but yep. terror suspects not. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> um, you know,
0: I'd just like to point out. Sorry, just return to Hillsborough for a second. Yes. just a, Presumably, the political calculation of hobbling the Hillsborough inquiry mm. is that it was most likely to come out against South Yorkshire police. Yep. And therefore he would have to be a home secretary who looked to be taking on the police. Yep. Right? Because there's literally nothing else. Like every everything Which else would be was impossible
1: a, for him because he was the tough on crime. We're tough on crime. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, oh my God. Even yeah. It, yeah. Can't seem like you're tough <laughs> on squeegee merchants if you know, you're, you're at
0: war with the South Yorkshire police. This, this the Starmer's recent attitude towards um, Black Lives Matter really should not be seen as an aberration.
1: No, it really shouldn't. Really shouldn't. Okay, so Rotherham sex abuse scandal was happening at this time, and according to The Telegraph, oh, wow. he'd highlighted the problem four years prior to the Jay Report um, being published, um, saying that there was a specific problem where Pakistani men were targeting, targeting young, vulnerable white oh, girls yeah. who were seen Slaverant. as easy meat. Um, late, there's some other things that come up later on. Everyone knows Jack Straw's relationship with Muslims. Um,
2: <clears throat>
1: um, in 2000, he turned down an asylum request from a man fleeing Saddam Hussein's regime, stating, we have faith in the integrity of the Iraqi judicial process, and you should have no concerns if you haven't done anything wrong. <laughs> in 2000.
0: Yes. Oh, wow. In 2000? <laughs> Sorry, I, I kind of—I suppose he wasn't Home Secretary after that. But yeah, I just kind of assumed that it was, uh, yeah. you know, during the the uh, provision of the occupation. No, no, the no, authority. no,
1: no, no, no. Because then, um, then, um, like, suspected under pressure from um, George Bush, Robin Cook stops being Foreign Secretary, and yeah. Jack Straw becomes Foreign Secretary. Um, um, oh yeah. What are um, in two thousand three? He does the provisions for the treaty that were enacted in the extradition act of two thousand three. The you know the 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 extradition treaty we have with America where um, Gary McKinnon will be like hassled, and we can't yeah. get back that woman who ran over that kid.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: You know that Completely. unfair one. That yeah. very, one, very, very one-sided one. Um, another thing that he did, like um, away from like Iraqi stuff, was um, the I didn't know about this the Equatorial Guinea coup d'état attempt in two thousand four. He was personally informed months in advance of the plans of the takeover and failed to accomplish the duty under international law of alerting the country's government.
2: Um, that that is that any, is a...
1: not saying this had anything to do with the involvement of British oil companies in the coup. Nothing um, at all to do with that. I'm not saying wait that.
0: was. Was that the one where Mark Thatcher got imprisoned? I think Son it was. of Margaret that. Year. Yes, I
1: think it was.
0: Cuz do you remember that was one of our favorite that was one of our favorite things for so long. Yeah. It was the the thing fact that, we'd that awesome. Mark Thatcher this fucking chinless idiot <laughs> yeah had been imprisoned for trying to procure helicopters <laughs> yeah. with some of his old school friends for <laughs> <Yeah>. a coup. <laughs> yes. In an in a in a rich kind of island African nation.
1: Yep, to make himself That like that king. by the way
0: bookmark here that
1: deserves another episode episode. yes it does yep it really does well the thing is i always remember with the mark thatcher thing is um you know the story of sealand where the son of the prince was kidnapped by a german guy that liked to collect micronations what and, oh, yeah! And the guy who was the founder of Sealand was in, like, the army, and him and a bunch of his old SAS mates literally went back and retook the island. <laughs> or a plat- concrete platform in the sea.
2: <laughs> Ugh,
1: that's a very weird one. Um, next one. Um, okay, he says he's got nothing to do with extraordinary rendition, that he has no com- no complicity with it, nothing to do with it. He dismissed the, su- the, the mere suggestion of UK involvement as a being a conspiracy theory. Um, he's never had anything to do with it. Never, ever, ever, ever. He was just foreign secretary at the time. What would he know?
0: <laughs> Overseeing all of those. Uh, yeah. So you literally know, all of those things. Yeah, wouldn't yeah. know
1: wouldn't know a single thing about that. Nothing to do with me, mate. Um, then okay, in two thousand six, um, he suggested in a local Lancashire a local Lancashire paper that Muslim women who wear veils that cover their faces can inhibit intercommunity relations. Though he denied the issue was raised for political gain, he stated he had raised this in private circles in the past and it had never progressed beyond discussions. He just happened to tell a paper now. Um, no no reason other than just, you know, just for a natter. Um, as you do.
0: Um, Which, ironically, the way of getting over into communication when you're wearing a veil is to fucking natter. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, although he did not support a law banning the women's right to choose to wear the veil he would like them to abandon it. And this it's one of those one. He's one of those guys. Um, he, I, I need that to must be have clear. been
0: very, very... That was very early yeah. in the kind of new Labour embrace of kind yeah. of Islamophobic rhetoric. Yeah. yeah, it needs to be made clear I'm not talking about being prescriptive,
1: but with all the caveats, yes, I would rather. Um, yeah. He said he had asked women in his constituency surgeries to consider uncovering their noses and mouths in order for be- to allow better communication. And claim that no woman had ever choose to wear a full veil after this request. It's important to remember how few women do wear the full veil, and, yeah. And how many were going in two thousand, like in two thousand six, to go to Jack Straw's um, <laughs> meetings? To, you know, not knowing exactly. You know what I mean? You're not. I don't think you were yeah. getting that many Muslims going to talk. To, like,
0: how, who goes to these these things anyway? i mean, presumably it's his role in his role as a constituency mp. Yeah,
1: it's one of the constituency surgeries. Right, but it's a surgery. To... Yeah. But yeah, so like like
0: they are they are things, but at the same time it's like there's no way unless you were asked about it and couldn't think of an answer. Yeah. There's no way you talk about that and don't talk about, say, people with disabilities that mean they have difficulty mm-hmm. um, speaking or any other number of issues yeah. about contact with your thing. The the only way you raise it is as a dog whistle. Yeah, and um, you raise he, it's literally legitimate and
1: it literally did it. Literally, this was apparently one of the first things that started the big debate on that on that shit. He apologized yeah. in 2010 um, when he was. Um, Secretary of State for Justice. Um, He uses authority as Justice Secretary to veto the publication of government documents requested under the Freedom of Information Act, in particular those pertaining to early government meetings held in the run-up to the Iraq
0: War. Hooray!
1: Yeah. Um, Oh, and then um, a final little thing about him, because, you know, just general New Labour stuff. Um, He was recorded by journalists from Daily Telegraph and Channel 4 News. (laughs) And... um, he they were pretending to be a fictitious Chinese company Tried to set up an advisory council. Um, Straw boasted that he'd operated under the table and had used his influence to change EU rules on behalf of a firm which paid him £60,000 a year. <laughs> so he had that as well. Yeah, he voluntarily withdrew from the PLP but stayed in the party. Um, he was found to have done nothing wrong. You know, like he never did anything wrong. There's nothing wrong there. Mm-hmm. Nothing to see it, Everything's fine. Everything's fine. It's all good. It's all good. Um, but um, yeah, so yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, that's Jack Straw. Jack Straw's illustrious. Just again, just like give him like let's just get rid of juries.
0: <laughs> he has a bit. Of, he has a bit of everything. He seems more guarded. He he always seemed less kind of balls out than everyone else. Mm-hmm. Well, he was the he sn- seemed less 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 aggressive. Well, he was the, in start the way that he secretary that he was like
1: starting on the you know you know the being angry at people. Starting with yeah. the proving that the Labour Party could be horrible authoritarians too.
0: Yeah. Check it
2: out, check out. Come, come on, come
0: on. Um, next up, uh, we have Alan Johnson. Um, he was a postman. Did you know he was a postman? <laughs> he's, postman he's working he's so class. He's know working class. Do you know he was a postman?
1: Yeah, he's a working class postman. So, do
0: you know he was a postman? Do you, do you know that he was a postman? <laughs> they fucking go on about it forever. Yeah, he was a postman. He's been like a top level politician since like 1983. Or something like that. I think the working class tattoo they give you <laughs> runs out after 20 or 30 fucking years. No, he's still got the he still
1: has the material concerns of a working-class man because
0: he only took a postman's
1: wage? <laughs> I think <laughs> not. Got to be kidding. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, of all the ideological covers for the kind of new Labour uh, working-class demolition job, let's say,
2: yeah,
0: he's the most egregious along with Prescott.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. When I
0: was doing this, I was thinking, like, is he the Southern working-class figure to balance out Prescott being so Northern? um probably is because he's raised in in london in west london yeah um yeah he was very much the kind of like he's the he's the figure who goes on desert island discs you know he had been working class he tried to start a band you know he was he was the the kind of he was the the boomer he was that boomer figure yeah for for new labor um he has, actually obviously, a pretty interesting upbringing. He was orphaned at 12. Um, he was brought up in a council flat by his sister. He left school at 15. He worked as a shelf stacker until he became a postman. He was a postman, you know. He was a postman <laughs> at 18. Um, by, the age of, by the age of 20, he'd already fathered three children, once leading Tony Blair to exclaim, gosh, you really are working class, aren't you? Oh, my God. Oh God. Telling you, yeah. Um, he was the first union general secretary uh, to be in the cabinet since the 1960s. A former special advisor, Mario Dunn, said about him, there's a flash about him. He's the only member of a Labour cabinet who could ever walk down Downing Street wearing a pair of Ray-Bans and look cool doing it. <laughs> this was apparently so, a common remember, opinion about Alan Johnson do you remember during when the that,
1: 2000s. Um, what's it called? The the, the singing programme where they wear a costume and a big mask.
0: Ah, yes, he was the masked
1: off. singer. Yeah, and then when he took he it was off and everyone's just going, it's Alan Johnson! And no one knows who Alan Johnson is. And I think it's like, a a, was it Chang? Chang from um, Communities on there. And it's like, what?
0: What? And I've just got this
1: image of them saying he was a postman. <laughs> um,
0: so he was a fairly junior member of cabinet until about 2004.
2: Yeah. Really um, when cool he became,
0: it. he became work and pension secretary. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to list out some like his various appointments here and see if you can note a, uh, a trend. Uh, September 2004 to May 2005, he was working pension secretary. May 2005 to May 2006, he was trade and industry secretary. May 2006 to June 2007, he was education secretary. He was health secretary from June 2007 to 2009 to June 2009. He was home secretary from June 2009 to May 2010. He was shadow home sec from May 2010 to October 2010, and he was shadow chancellor from October 2010 to January 2011. (laughs) The common thing there is doesn't actually seem to be very good at anything because he keeps Mm. getting moved on. No. Yeah. (laughs) Um, When he was originally announced as a trade and industry secretary, uh, they were originally going to change the name to the uh, secretary of state for productivity, energy and industry. Uh, they had to change this because people noticed that when you acronymized that, it came out as penis. <laughs> uh, it was a simpler time. <laughs> Thousands dying in vicious imperial wars, you know. Yeah. Um, as education secretary, he encouraged parents to spend more time teaching their kids. Look, that's a good thing. That's fine. But there's always this whiff when New Labour announces these things, in that they saw themselves as trying to absent Kind of good state provision from the process. Yeah, they were trying to pin the bl- again, trying to pin the blame on someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, when he was health secretary, uh, obviously this is two thousand seven to two thousand nine, so this is in the absolute dregs of New Labour. Um, nothing much was changing, but he uh, he criticised a breast cancer patient for buying a cancer drug. Uh, off the NHS, um, and he withheld the severance payment of an NHS chief executive um, after it turned out she was blameless in a breakout of C. difficile, I think it is, Um, one of the uh, superbugs.
1: Um,
0: He was then ordered to pay it back by a high court tribunal and cost the NHS a shitload of money. As Home Secretary, uh, he followed the traditional path of sacking the chairman of the Misuse of Drugs Council. That was uh, David Nutt. Um, he finally sacked him Uh, David Nutt had said the government had distorted the evidence around rejecting declassified drugs particularly MDMA and weed
2: Um,
0: he basically did a support role in all of these things, he supported MI5 he um, charged the Tories and his critics to distance themselves from David Davis after he claimed that MI5 had colluded in torture Um, he was a massive fucking incompetent, he's the opposite to John Reed he people liked him because he had this kind of easy charm he had um, because he had ray-bans and you know he had those cool jeans my head they're not
1: like they're not like aviator cool guy glasses like i have they're wraparound ones <laughs> <laughs> like, like, a new, like a new metal singer
0: <laughs> <laughs> um he really kind of kicks into gear because after 2010 there's this period that he becomes like the great white hope and i do mean the great white hope because it was mainly centered around blue labor. Um, when he was shadow chancellor, he publicly challenged Ed Miliband on the 50 P tax rate saying it, it this, this measure was only temporary. Whereas Ed Miliband and Ed, uh, Ed Balls were saying, uh, Ed Miliband was saying, no, this is something we want to bring in for good.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, and he kind of basically spent the entirety of Ed, uh, Ed Miliband's tenure as leader, sort of half briefing against him with the mm-hmm. hope that he would be the, the leader. Everybody thought he was going to be leader. Yeah. Everybody thought he was going to go up for it um, because essentially he'd had a higher, a higher profile because he wrote his memoir called The Boy about his admittedly pretty interesting early life. But uh, mainly everyone had become so wrapped up with UKIP. This was the era of UKIP. And they'd become so concerned with UKIP voicing opinions that they themselves had voiced 18 months earlier <laughs> That they wanted a saviour. They wanted an authentic working class plain talking antidote to UKIP. Yeah. Uh plain talking antidote to UKIP. Not my words, the words of Owen Jones, and he did a big hagiographical article on him back in 2014, maybe? Um the new statesman called him the shadow minister for working class authenticity.
2: Oh gorgeous. <laughs> Vile.
0: After Miliband was elected, he even attacked the way that the vote had happened, the leadership vote, saying he preferred one person, uh, one vote. Uh, that he's a fucking incompetent because Ed Miliband still would have won and Diane Abbott would have come third <laughs> if it was one person, one vote. Yeah. Um But the obviously the subtext of saying one person, one vote is that he wanted to sever the link between the Labour Party and the unions entirely. Yeah. Which I don't know if you know the state of the finances in that Mm -hmm. period of the Labour Party. That Mm -hmm. would have killed the Labour Party. Now, this is a goal that I am increasingly sympathetic (laughs) to. So, fine. But he is fucking stupid. He is utterly, utterly incompetent. If you wanted the Labour Party to thrive and Mm -hmm. rebuild after the new Labour years, severing the links with the union and at the very base of it, the money that they provide is ridiculous, ridiculous. That's a tactical, that's tactical and strategic mistake that would have killed the Labour Party.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but yeah, eventually, eventually he just spent the next few years hanging around saying he'd be open to going back on the front benches under Miliband and generally defending the, the Blairite legacy. Yeah. Uh, in 2016, he then becomes the head of Labour's Remain campaign. Um, some highlights from that was saying that Tessa Jowell was Labour's Kylie. Oh my
1: God. Um, well, that's that working class authenticity coming
0: through. there. Right? <laughs>
1: Everyone loves he Kylie. W-
0: he was an absolute disaster. He received about zero point nine of all of the coverage of all public figures during didn't he that do, uh, like, thing.
1: Didn't he not set up a Twitter? They didn't set up a Twitter account for it for ages. Nope. Um, nope. I think he only did like one speech or like. I don't believe he
0: has a has a Twitter account because he then, because he could then spend the next four years bitching at Corbyn for saying he didn't support Remain enough. Yeah. Um, But there's another interesting thing from this. One of his quotes was like, Europe remains the backstop guarantee for workers rights. Mm. And he's like a Blairite who defends that legacy a lot more strongly than most. And like saying Europe remains the backstop guarantee for workers rights. You were in power for 13 years. (laughs) You, you were the backstop. All of your powers and you did nothing. Nothing. (laughs) Very revealing about the relationship between New Labour and the EU and subsequently Brexit. Liberals depending on the EU, which they can then turn around and have a go at for guaranteeing the rights that your party, your political representation should be pushed to protect. Mm. Fucking ridiculous. And of course, the the cherry on top with Alan Johnson is that the first voice most people heard right after the uh, 2019 election result was announced was alan johnston's uh, calling john landsman momentum and all the people who've been out canvassing entryists and saying he wanted them out of his party yep. quote he said i don't live in london i'm from yorkshire a two million pound house in yorkshire a working class community we've always been a disappointment for john landsman and his cult corbyn was a disaster everyone knew he couldn't lead the working class out of a paper bag go back to your student politics
1: that moment made me feel physically sick. He John Lansman looked fucking crushed at that and Yeah. It, imagine like that imagine piece that. of shit.
0: Oh. John Lansman, right? Okay, I have my like issues with strategy and tactics with John Lansman and I have my issues with the Labour Party generally. Yeah. John Lansman's not a fucking entryist. No. John Lansman has been in that party for his entire adult life. Yeah. Like criticizing for many things including staying in the labor party for his entire life. (laughs) But don't doubt the fact that he's not a fucking entryist. It was just, it was just disgusting. And talking about leading the working class and I'm from Yorkshire, a working class community, this fucking millionaire fucking piece of shit politician who just recently had dressed as a Pharaoh on the (laughs) the masked singer, the fucking most like fiddling while Rome burns, Versailles moment that someone could do. And this piece of shit has the. And the worst thing is, I know that he's going to trade off his fucking, what, 20, 25 years before he became one of the most highly paid, high profile (laughs) members of the British political class for the last 40 years. And he's going to be one of those people who works out that Working class authentic image, and one of those people who ekes out a media profile for the rest of his fucking life. I kind of used to not like him, but he was my dad was in the CWU, which was Johnson's Union, and and Mm. my dad really kind of liked him because he was a brother, Mm. and. He's the kind of politician who's been in everything for so long, done so many little bits of jobs badly. And the gap between his achievements and his profile that will last for the rest of his fucking life is the widest of any new Labour figure. He is—he will continue feasting on media appearances for the rest of his wretched fucking life. And he... It, oh! <laughs> I fucking hate him so much. So much. I don't even know what that represents about new Labour other than just the... <laughs> He's the he's the most now of new Labour figures. Yeah. Utterly empty suit piece of shit.
1: <laughs> okay, my last one, I was I, I'd like fiddled around with a couple of different ideas. I was thinking about Ken Livingston, but Ken Livingston is too big a figure. Controversial. And yeah. my opinions on him are too long for a bit yeah. on this episode. Yeah, um, they're complicated. Yeah. Um it, they're mainly not good. Um and <laughs> yeah, then I was thinking yeah. maybe Alistair Darling, but he's so dull. Um and then I finally settled on Harriet Harman. But the thing is with Harriet Harman is she did a good thing. Um she did a good thing which was, you know, making the Labour Party vote um abstain on that on the austerity thing. Um which actually was a good thing because it gave us a nice a nice list of who isn't a monster in the Labour yeah. Party, which yeah. for all of the horribleness with the Labour Party abstaining on the you know legalised torture bill, um, we did get a nice list of, of a new eighteen who aren't horrible going. Yeah. Towards. So yeah, so that's, that's I didn't have an I don't have another one. I think that's all. You that's, don't have another one. That's yeah, it. That's yeah. All
0: the there's a there's a lot of ones who've done individual things. Like mm-hmm. I mean, practically every Labour minister at this point has criticised from a grab bag of Muslims. Mm-hmm. Um, Sex workers, trans people, um, immigrants generally, Mm -hmm. pretty much all of them have done that. Uh, Pakistanis in particular, Mm -hmm. um, single mums. You know, striking workers, single Mm mums was a big one. Yep. Council house tenants. And there's a lot of debate over how to describe new labor. You know, was it Christian socialism? Was it Mm -hmm. Clintonism? Social democracy? Neoliberalism? Uh, was it you know authoritarian labor rightism is probably a legitimate thing to call it
1: yeah
0: but honestly like going back through this the two most revealing things that when you go back and look through the record of these people is how completely cruel and sadistic they could be
2: yeah
0: and it stems from this absolute inability to see themselves as the bad guys Mm. as the baddies they were the people who saved you from thatcher there was nothing that they could do that was as bad as thatcher was yeah and how indignant they got and still get when you question the new labor legacy mm. and like i think like one of the reasons why it's worth looking at the individuals that made it up rather than kind of the bigger policies and, and intellectual kind of trends is that so much of new Labour's justification is the individual uh story and narrative of each minister is that of the hard decision. You know, they were the hard headed, realistic people yeah. um, that made the decision to compromise with the markets, to compromise with the fascists, to compromise with the racists. Um, and quite like the, the compromise with capitalism was implicit that the left or the working class were too weak and disorganized to be able to resist these large global forces. So mm. they had to be the ones to implement it because they would implement it well on their behalf. Um And it ended up being this kind of weird, like heroic myth that no one else could have made the decisions that New Labour were forced to make. They made every bad decision with a sigh and a heavy heart and a moral strain that you, the little people, will never know. Hmm. And the subtext is we took the burden upon ourselves and we made the compromise. And it's almost like It's almost Bolshevik in its idea that this vanguard of professionals was needed to kind of take this intolerable moral strain because you would crack under it. They're just better people. They're just harder people. Yeah. Um, And then when their moral mission eventually starts to run, inevitably run into problems, rather than change, they begin to section off. The bad from the good. And I mean you remember the rhetoric around social exclusion in yeah. pretty much every field that they touched. Social exclusion was exclusion was one of their favorite tools, the idea that if you just cut out the bad things, actually all this stuff was very good. Um and when they come in they're focusing on pupils, they're focusing on promoting multiculturalism, on being good neighbors. That's that communitarian thing, volunteerism. Mm. Um as a contrast to the racism and alienation that had come up with the Thatcher era. And when things went bad, they turned it into the fault of the dark negatives of these people who they were meant to protect of their promises when they came in. So the problem with education was bad pupils. Hmm. The problem with social cohesion was bad multicultures, bad like, uh, uh, subcultures.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, the problem with community values was bad neighbors. And therefore they then transferred the difficult decisions onto them. They had to take difficult decisions with those bad people. When those promises of what would happen when they got into power were stripped away, all they were left with was, was was the compromise, was the burden of power. And they were fucking begging to be put out of their misery by 2010. Not many people remember that, but for all of their labor winning stuff, they were absolutely begging. And this, 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 this kind of, nihilism that came out of they were willing to do absolutely anything to hold on to their particular they were willing to utilize any hatreds to 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 win another election. It seemed to devolve into this hatred about themselves and about the labor movement itself, which is obviously when they all start coming out and complaining about the union link. Like Thatcher wrecked the basis of the inter uh, the inter- institutional basis of the Labour Party, industry, council housing, local councils, mm-hmm. and New Labour were incredibly myopic in that they gave no thought to exactly who was supposed to vote for them in the future. Yeah, they were governing for this increasingly nebulous everybody, but everybody hated them. <laughs> and when you rule like in that ideological way of thinking that you're governing for the nation rather than a particular coal- class coalition or you know a particular group or whatever, you start getting these weird emanations. You know, mm. and that's why they start kind of focusing on this mythical working class, this authoritarian working class who wants you to to rule the country like a tyrant. Yeah. Um, and we've spent the last like five years listening to this fucking history of the Labour Party as this mm. anti-racist, liberal, progressive force. Yeah. And if anything, like what's so astounding about New Labour is not how they manage the right wing. What's astounding is how they managed to keep the broad left and liberalism on side. Yeah there were definitely points where they lost them hard. Like co- commentators now mourn what was lost with the passing of the classic new labor party, the liberal left of center, sensible socially liberal party.
2: Yeah.
0: Those exact same liberals were pleading for a social Democrat in 2010. Mm. Absolutely pleading. They could not believe what new labor had become.
2: Mm.
0: Um, yeah. I, who's the, who's, who do you think's the worst out of that, out of that group? Blunkett. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just The first one, you know what? Like, it's I, I, well, no, the, the,
1: okay. The other ones have all got their little things, and they've all got their yeah. stuff. And you know, Mandelson and, and Campbell and Iraq and all that. But Blunkett just
0: is all of evolved. the others. All of the, all of the others are em- emblematic of something. Yeah, and in their ways, slot into almost like slot into the bad things about New Labour. Blunkett makes new. New things. Yeah. He was a you know, sadist. Like Blunkett is a social sadist, one of the one of the most horrifically right wing, reactionary, brutal, sadistic home secretaries we've ever had.
2: Yeah.
0: Absolutely no uh regrets about anything he has ever done. Um completely off his rocker, like messianic in his mission to bring law and order. It it yeah. Yeah, it's him, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's him. i yeah. still yeah. Yeah. So we were right all along. We were right at the beginning. Yeah, yeah when we
1: first talked about doing this, it was like it's, it's gonna be him, it's gonna be him, that piece of shit. Yeah, as soon as
0: it as soon as we discussed who we wanted to do, it was like, yeah, I want blanket it. and it's like, yeah, he's gonna win. <laughs> <laughs> so that's us for this week. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow us at WDTATW underscore podcast, follow me at BM Bergamo, follow Hugh at Tanner Smashing, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye.
1: about the fighting game when Mr. Hoover said...